Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Um, Seth Morris, can you tell everybody about the, the deal with the stop sign you were telling me about? Oh, so um, in, in previous podcasts, I've heard you guys talk about what you've heard turkeys gobble to. Yes, um, which is a long, expansive list. Giant list. Uh, so, um, one. Uh, I'm from Pennsylvania. And you can't hunt on Sundays. So, which is another thing I like to talk about. Yeah. If there's three things I like to talk about, okay, it's dip, <laughs> Sunday hunting laws. Yep. And shit, turkeys gobble too. Perfect. That's the three things I'm interested in. So, and this this ties in. Two of those things. If you were packing a dip, this would be a great story for me. <laughs> that was high, that was high school. I might have been. Oh, okay. I might have been. So this is my kind of story. Yeah. This is all the stuff I like in it. Yeah. So um, can't hunt on Sunday. So me and my buddy went out on Sunday just to listen for birds. It was during the season. And we went to the spot where we could, like, look down this big hollow. In, in Pennsylvania, we call them hollows. You do? Yep. You guys can't do that. Yeah, we can. Hollow, That's not hollers. No, not holler. Hollow. Oh, okay. I was going to accuse you of cultural appropriation. It's spelled the no. same way, but they actually pronounce it. We call them hollows. Really? Yeah. You grew up saying that? Yep. Dude, I wouldn't have known what anybody was talking I, about I, if they said a hollow. I live up Curtin Hollow. That's no. where I used to live, up Curtin Hollow. In Pennsylvania. If, if someone asked me where I lived, I'd say up Curtin Hollow. Do you guys say fixing? Some people do. 
That depends on the person. One time I had a, was guiding a fella from Missouri, and he told me I was guiding a six-pack of guys, so I would just kind of rotate through them throughout the week. And we get back, you know, everybody's telling what they heard and what they saw, and the old man looked at me, and he said, I heard a bull over there hollering in the holler. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, huh? They say uh-huh. hollow in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yep. Huh. Anyway. We're it must have been when all them boys was up fighting at Gettysburg. They introduced <laughs> when Lee raided the North. They must have introduced that term. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it came from, but they use it. Um, anyway, so there you are looking there, down into there a we holler, are looking over this hollow, and weren't hearing anything, and we're just getting ready to leave. And there was a stop. We're at an intersection. Mm-hmm. And there was a stop sign there, so I pick up a rock, throw it at the stop sign. Okay, stop there. Uh. Were you hucking the rock at a stop sign as out of vandalism, out of a vandalism impulse? No. It was more of like, I wonder if I can hit that with a rock. Okay, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I'm with you. So I did that, and I hit it, and two birds fired off. Yeah. Up on the hill. So we've got to add hucking rocks at stop signs. Yep. That's another one. That's something you could just carry around in your truck. A rock. You don't even no, have to carry a stop sign. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, you can set get rocks it, anywhere. against your tire or the yeah, nearest you got tree. Yeah, you got to you get a new turkey vest that has a t- stop sign stapled to the, hung on the back <laughs> of it. Um, another thing I want to touch on real quick is uh, a lot of people wrote in about this. It's not that fresh of a story anymore. But there's a famous skier who Yanni's heard of. How many people in here have heard of Andrew McLean, the skier? I have not. Mm-mm. Just Son of the gun. You had heard of his book that he wrote, The Shooting Gallery. Yeah. I've heard of the book. So Which I believe is writer. kind of the Bible of the Utah, Wasatch. Wat- yeah, Utah's Wasatch Mountain skiing. So this guy and his, and his, I don't know if it's his girlfriend or wife, um, famous skier, Pillars of the Community. She's actually some kind of uh, si- uh, assistant city attorney. Wife, his wife, Andrew McLean and his wife. Polly Samuels, McLean, um, out in the woods, having to be toting around, I guess, a set of bolt cutters and steal a dude in Utah um, near Park City, steal a dude's tree stand, a couple tree stands, and steal a trail camera. But they screw up, and he misses one of the trail cams down the trail. So the hunter gets an image on his trail cam of the other dude packing out his trail cam and tree stands. And he goes and puts the image up online and a couple hunting groups help him out spreading the image around. And pretty soon it gets identified as this famous skier and his uh, pillar of the community wife who now have felony charges, facing felony charges. I guess he just came out and said it's inexcusable. He has no excuse. Horrible thing to do. I'd like to know if he's a skier. You mean a hunter? Of course he's a skier. I'm sorry, a hunter. No, man. That, every, listen, I haven't dug into it too deep, but I haven't read any suggestion that he was stealing the stuff because he needed a new tree stand. Well, he can't use it now if he's got felony, if he gets charged a felony, because once you get a felony, you can't have a gun, right? Yeah, but he could bow hunt. Oh, yeah. He could bow hunt out of his tree stand. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know, like, he like, really screwed up if he's stealing it for hunting purposes, and now he can't even... What's weird is he brought it home. 
Yeah. He didn't just go and throw it down in a ditch, down into a holler. <laughs> or a hollow. Or a hollow. He brought it home. I, I, I don't know if he's speaking to what his motivations were. Did he really need a tree stand and a trail cam that bad? The, the, like, I don't know. I can't back this up. I, don't, I haven't looked into it. But everything I've read has carried with it the suggestion that they were doing it because they think that hunters can suck it. But I don't know. He has. I don't know that he said. That. It's just like people's the, the insinuation. Why not just leave that note? Hunters can suck it on the guy's tree stand rather than take his tree stand because like, he likes. He's a man of action. Did his wife comment? Haven't read where she's had a comment. Maybe that was her. He's mother. got a lot more to lose. It sounds like because um, you know he's he's like a person that people look up to and an outdoor enthusiast and probably has some has probably enjoyed some level of his life and success utilizing public lands, and here he is trashing on someone else's legal right to mm-hmm. put a couple temporary hunting implements out on public land in violation of nothing. So, yeah, it looks pretty bad for the guy. I'm just, I just read the little piece that Powder Magazine's website did on it. and uh, What's their take on they're it? They're also saying... Well, they start off by saying that there's been animosity between skiers and backpackers toward hunters over the years. But it appears, according to reports, McLean decided to finally take matters into his own hands, which I feel like is kind of bullshit because I've been living in both those worlds for well over a decade, close to two decades, and I've never had seen any kind of animosity between those groups. You, Lauren? Why you, would there be animosity? Oh, I mean, there is, man. You've never had any like you never had any like a little bit of trailhead tension. No, but it's kind of different sure, seasons but, almost. But not even. from a backpacker or a skier. It's from freaking some lady with a little micro dog that's from way out of town. Not a not a mountain recreator like like um that, that skiers oh, and see. backpackers You're being and specific hunters. Specific to skiers or backpackers. Yeah, I got you. Maybe some kind of animal rights activist. Who knows? You know, but animosity between hunters and skiers doesn't seem to really. Dude, like I, guarantee, I guarantee you go dig through this guy's garbage. There's some meat scraps in that garbage. I don't really know. I shouldn't say that. What am I talking about? <laughs> saying that he's a meat eater, not a vegetarian. Yeah. So just like, it's just, if he's doing, yeah. But I'm just bummed that Powder Magazine is putting this out there that, you know, someone should be like, oh, yeah, 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 I, I agree. Um, yeah, I never really liked hunters either. Yeah, don't say that and start start a thing where there's not a thing, you know? Yeah, they end their little piece here by saying somewhere a crusty local tips his glass. What the hell does that mean? Because they said not to condone criminal activity, but to, but Andrew McLean may have just written himself deeper into backcountry ski lore with this one. No way. Really? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm a little disappointed with Powder, Talk about Powder Magazine. Talk it. Really? Really? Wow. That's what that says? Yeah, I bet. Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, in an episode called An Object in Its Shadow, we were talking about an area where a, a ram, a doll ram, was laying where he had a little cubby of rock that protected him, his back. So he had, he's, view, he's looking out on a panoramic view, but he's protected from behind by an, an outcrop, an overhanging outcrop of rock. And we were talking about how it's kind of like this perfect spot where he can see everything below him. And then he's got a buffer, a barrier behind him. So something that comes immediately behind him might not see him. And I was saying how whitetail bucks like to lay like that too, where they'll get on kind of like right toward the top of a ridge and they'll lay up with their back kind of 
curled against a log or an overhang or something and they can look out down below them so they got some protection and hit they're hidden from behind and can see below and this dude wrote in to say that it sounds an awful lot like what the geographer jay appleton called the prospect refuge theory in his 1975 book the experience of landscape and he says the prospect refuge theory goes that People, humans, prefer the edges of environments with a vista in front and protection from the back and sides based on the evolutionary understanding that this increased the probability of survival for early humans by protecting them from unseen dangers. The theory is widely accepted and applied as a design principle in landscape architecture and interior design. That's interesting. Very. Wow. On a similar note, Buck Bowden on another episode was talking about how in nature things are round and we got talking about um, how we build, humans build squares now. And he was saying it's just been proven time and again that that when it comes to buildings, squares are just a much more efficient use of space. And he mentioned, imagine that you have a bunch of round objects and you stack them in place. You have a lot of empty. Yeah, a lot of gaps. But you build square and fill with right you build right angles and fill with right angles and you find that you have a lot less wasted space and more usable yeah look at new york city if everything was round (laughs) it wouldn't work (laughs) it'd be a mess would be uh another quick piece dude wrote in saying he can't listen anymore because we talk about dip too much I'm sensitive to that and I don't want to talk about dip anymore but I have a couple final thoughts on dip because that for one guy that is sick of hearing about dip, it seems like a lot of other people, dippers, want their voices to be heard. So I'm, I just shook a guy's hand today. Great guy. And I'm walking up to shake his hand. I see him take his finger and scoop out a... With his shaking hand? <laughs> with shaking hand. Oh, brother. Like him, too. Like him. Like yeah. him a lot. Like him a lot. That's a little huh. etiquette, huh. maybe. Huh. Um, I'm assuming it sanitized it. So... <laughs> guy writes in to say this he goes you know i'm glad you guys are discussing the finer points of dipping and he was saying that he used to follow a hockey player named miko savonin known as the flying fin and this guy got himself a a plunger used in the application of administering drugs to dogs because he would put his dip in his plunger and pack it real tight i don't know what you get out of packing it tight he'd like a nice tight pack does that make sense well you, I, I guess you just don't want it to fall apart and get all in your teeth and- he'd put it in the tube and then use the plunger part to compact it and make it into a sort of plug he then put this in his upper lip and no one could ever tell it was in we called it the upper decker <laughs> not to be confused with the upper deck where you poop in the top tank of someone's <laughs> toilet. Um, and actually, when, when we're done here today, I have to go buy a part for my Kohler toilet. Um, another guy wrote in to talk about the same thing, where he's saying that in, in high school, dipping was so bad, and him and his friends dipped so much that when they came into class, the teacher would make them line up and inspect their lips to make sure they weren't coming into class. And they took to hide and skull bandits in their upper lip to get away from it. He says that they would run 
both <laughs> upper deckers and lower deckers at the same time, and they took to calling it a full stadium. <laughs> 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 that must have made it even that much more fun to be dipping when you had to come in with like a chipmunk and have your teacher inspect your mouth yeah. and then sit yeah. down and be like, I got, still got two in. <laughs> Tell your buddies, I got two in. Still got a full stadium. Dude, the full stadium is the best thing in the world, man. Uh, that's it for any kind of newsy type objects. We're just coming back from um, coming back from big, yeah, you could probably go as so far as to call it a big elk hunt. A big elk hunt in, in, in extreme southeastern Washington state, which is some dry, rocky-ass country. People that aren't from that area, I think, like, they don't realize how about the difference between western and eastern Washington. Like, people know Seattle, right, for all of its rain and everything, but, you know, half that state, or more than half that state, lays in, in kind of in the rain shadow of the Cascades, where weather you know comes off the pacific ocean and the air is laden with water and as all that air gets pushed up over the cascades it compresses the water density increases comes out as precipitation and then it's pretty much dry air that moves from there and that and other factors has led to like great aridity in eastern washington and so we were hunting like a really dry ass deserty ass place in Washington, in the unit, I'll, I'll just tell you. You could unit. have plucked us from one of those mountainsides. Now up high, because down low in the bottom is a different story. But up high, you could have taken yourself off one of those mountainsides and put yourself on a Mexican hillside in the Sonora, and you wouldn't have known you moved fifteen hundred miles. It was a lot like Sonora. Dry, crumbly rock, only grass, Lush no bottoms. sage. Lush bottoms, though. Yeah. You give that place a little bit of soil and a little bit of water and a little bit of shade, and you get these thick hellhole bottoms. I'd go far, so far as to call them hellholes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree, I would with, agree that. with that. Jungle <laughs> rock, juniper, like juniper, ponderosa pine, western hemlock. Yep, western hemlock. And then, uh, and then down the bottoms, a, a great array of fruiting plants. Yeah, there were fern down there. There's green, thick. Alders. Yeah, wild rose, elderberry, choke cherry. Um which made it feel jungle like. I mean, we were crawling through some thick stuff down in those thick bottoms. ass jungles. Uh the unit, I'll just I'll just tell you the unit. People are always calling us to ask us about what units we were in doing this and that. It was unit one seventy two Mountain View. That's right. Because it's a really hard tag to draw. Um we've explained this a thousand times, but like in hunting you know, if you have if you have the a supply of animals that doesn't meet the demand, what you need to do is you need to you need to limit how many people are getting after it. And so you, they do these things called permit draws, right? So this area we were hunting, and they only give out. I think they give out you know somewhere ten, you know some years ten or fourteen archery elk tags for a unit that's about a hundred square a hundred square miles. Uh, and, 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 and you need to accumulate what's called bonus points to draw the permit. So you need to have a typically you would need to have applied unsuccessfully for one of these units, you know, between three and ten years in order to have any reasonable chance of going and drawing the one seven two permit. And I, after living 
in Washington State for three years accumulated enough bonus points to go and draw the unit for 172. And what they call it in Washington is they call it a quality elk unit. Um, because there's a lot of stuff where you can just go, you know, in the western part of the state where success rates are extremely low and hunting conditions are extremely difficult because you're hunting coastal rainforest. Um, you can have a lot of people take a crack at it. And since it's so hard, very few of them kill the elk anyway. But in the eastern part of the state where it's open country and just to kind of like the elk act differently and it's easier to find them, you need to limit access. And so they give these these permit draws out. And I drew one of these permits to go hunt 172. And I just get like so a buddy recommended the unit to me. I never stepped foot in the place. Um, hadn't even really been that close to it. And so I, it was like one of those rare conditions, circumstances where you go to hunt big game in a place you've never laid eyes on. We show up down there, and uh, Ridge, tell them the first thing that we saw. Big old fire. Big fire. Control Everything burn. just covered in smoke. A lot of smoke. Made for some really, we showed up at sunset and like popped on this big ridge and looked down in this valley. It was really pretty, but yeah, did not make it easy for glassing some of the days. Yeah, when we showed up, it was actually too smoky to glass. Mm-hmm. The creek, the drainage we're hunting is Menachee. Menachee Creek. And show up and it's just like smoky as all get out. Hot and sunny. What's wrong, Alice? Um and right away I get the idea, like like when you do something like this, you get in your head that it's gonna be um you get in your head that it's gonna be all you kind of think about is like all the good stuff. Because if you look online, the reputation of this particular unit is that it's prohibitively steep, very nasty, but having tons of elk in it, mm-hmm. which wound up being very accurate assessment. Totally. Yeah. But we show up and we drive to a spot and like every camp spot has someone camped in it. And then we drive to a spot and it's like um, just trucks and dudes Lots of trucks, lots of dudes, lots of wall tents. Yeah, set up. What you don't agree with that, Giannis? I mean, it's all relative. To me, it wasn't that out of out of the ordinary. What we saw. Go on. But it definitely freaked you guys out. You guys definitely felt like the pressure. I think. Well, I didn't feel it. It's not. I I think I was surprised by it because the last three trips that I've done have been in Alaska, where you just you fly in and you don't see anybody. The last three trips you've done with us have all been Alaska. Yeah. It was the last one of Fognac and uh, Caribou. Oh. So you just fly in and see the dudes that you're with. You don't roll up to your spot and see like a bunch of Yeah, the next human's like trailers 20 and, to 50 miles away. Yeah, I got you. So then you you're, know, coming from the, you're coming from that context. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, God, there's a lot of people in our spot. But what's weird is what is like the weird thing is everyone we're talking to, we pull up in a place and there's how many trucks are parked where we pull in, where we slept. Two. Two trucks there. And... But both of them come up, both of the guys come up at dusk separately, and both of them are like, dude, there's bulls everywhere, right? Yeah. And he's like, I was in there working them, and Tommy and Doug, they're camped down the other way. They were working them, and Bill and Harvey were working them. Jay and Dan are working them tomorrow. And it's like, wow, it's a chaos around here. 
And I got a little panicky and decided to go off somewhere that had no elk. <laughs> Ended up not having any elk. <laughs> yeah. Which I think was coincidence, because later we heard there were elk in that zone. Yeah. Well, but, here's the other part. What? So we get up on that big hill, and to the left of us is a smoke. It's like apocalyptic to the left of us. You ever seen the movie Apocalypto? Hmm. Yes, Mel Gibson. The movie's a real disappointment. Mm-hmm. Real disappointment. Um, what, did you love that movie? No, never seen it. Oh, okay. What was that little look? I'm thinking we might, we might need to find out. Yeah. Oh, Apocalypto? Yeah. Okay. It's about... Is it worth finding out for yourself? No. Okay. I, I was drawn to it because it involves hunting and hunters, but these are like pre-Columbian... Um, People in the people in Mesoamerica, mm-hmm. uh, like indigenous hunters from Mesoamerica, and the movie actually like ends with the, the ends with the arrival of um, ends with the arrival of Europeans. So it, presumably the action takes place in like 1491. Oh, okay. Let's say and it's about a guy, you know, and they get kidnapped by the bad Aztecs or whatever, and he needs to get back. And it starts just like just like Last of the Mohicans, just like um, what was the really bad Mountain Man movie that uh, Leonardo Revenant, the Revenant, Revenant yeah. like it's a group of dudes. It starts out with a bunch of dudes chasing a big game animal. Yeah, like if you want to get people sucked into a movie, <laughs> apparently you have a bunch of dudes in a very unrealistic hunting situation chasing a big game animal, creeping through the woods, and they catch a tape here in the beginning of Apocalypto. And knowing that these people probably would have used small stone flakes and probably very carefully disarticulated their tape here. Instead, he pulls out like a giant dagger and like stabs it into its guts. Mm. And I'm like, man, man, (laughs) you know, why you gotta, why you gotta, yeah. Mess up history. They missed like that. that one, huh? Yeah. Just it's always like that when people are hunting in movies. Um, what was I talking about? So we're up. Oh, on it looked that apocalyptic, point. not <laughs> apocalypto. The movie it looked apocalyptic, like the end of the end of existence. But to the right, it got tricky because some people would hear the sound we heard to the right and think it was apocalyptic, and some people would hear the sound to the right and think that it was utopian. Which is a bunch of freaking wolves cutting loose. Mm-hmm. Wolves. That was cool. Yeah. That was cool. Half of Americans, not half, a huge percentage of Americans would hear that and be like, oh my God, it's also so awesome. Yep. But there's a little subset of Americans who would hear that and be like, come on, dude. I don't want to share. Yeah. I don't want to share with those things. They're hunting the same thing we were. Mm-hmm. And they're just basically saying, like, in hunting, you're trying to be all quiet, not let anything know you're around. These wolves are out there like, we're going to kill you. <laughs> I'm coming to cut you to pieces. Just howling away. And guys, what they were saying, those wolves came in, the elk shut up. It shuts the elk down. They stopped bugling. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. If I had like a pack of wolves honing in on my locale because I was making a bunch of racket, I'd be like, mm-mm. Be like, easy there. Mm-hmm. Easy, easy. Let's do quiet. Let's do this all quiet. Like. Yeah. Which totally makes sense because we saw that bull yeah. with the cows and he didn't make a peep. Yeah, we dropped down into that. Um, we dropped down into this, this thing called the West Fork 
West Fork Trail to spend the night down in there. And all we're hearing about is all these bulls screaming their fool heads off. And here's the bull in there with some cows, and he never makes a peep. We watched him in the evening, slept, listened through the night in our sleeping bags, woke up in the morning, never a peep. And there's wolf tracks right down in the bottom of that drainage. People get anxious about those wolves, man. <laughs> Them wolves. I wonder if that's why those elk are all living on those steep hillsides because of those wolves being around. I wonder if that's advantageous to them. Like it's harder for the wolves to get a kill. It's way harder for them to hunt. They don't like hunting on that stuff. Right. Lions like hunting steep stuff, but wolves don't like hunting steep stuff because wolves hunt by, like lions hunt by surprise, very short jumps, and wolves hunt by just wearing you down. And so they don't like being on that jump. But the wolves have only been in there for a couple of years. Right. So I think there's probably some of that story's unwritten. But we get up to the spot, and it's like all these people running around talking about all these bulls and everything. And then, um, yeah, and it was like I did the classic, like, leave elk to find elk, right? Which you didn't like none, did you, Yanni? At that point, I didn't really care because I figured in that unit we would just walk down any trail and it was going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we were hearing bugling bulls at the same time we heard the wolves the first night. But then after the wolves had been in there, they shut up. Yeah, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, my name's Lauren Moulton. I'm and one of the camera guys. One of the camera. But this, the first, this is the first time you've ever been out with us. First meat eater hunt. Yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> cheers to that. <laughs> <laughs> but you filmed like boatloads of hunts. I've had a uh, few years behind the camera on different hunting shows like Randy Newberg's On Your Own Adventures, Huntley Ritter's Outlanders, done some random stuff, uh, other kinds of hunts. Shot some big network TV shows. Yeah, I work as a freelancer for a company out of Missoula, Montana, do Mountain Men on History Channel, uh, and then over the years have done a handful of other kinds of shows like that Good Go on, what were we t- and what were we talking about before i interrupted you oh just the fact that we were here in bulls bugle right there out of camp and you guys were just mentioning that uh we left elk to find elk which you know is always you never know what to do right you think you just like yana said you think it's gonna be like that everywhere you go and then all of a sudden you're hiking seven yeah. miles and not hearing anything we did tons of like phone scouting because if you go to hunt a place you've never been you got to start calling anyone you can think of so in the months since we i drew the permit we talked to the local biologist talked to the local game warden talked to a not quite local game warden talked to a not quite local biologist talked to two guides talked to a former tag holder who talked to another formal tag holder Talked to the pizza magnate Jimmy Doran, who talked to another former tag holder. Oh, I didn't know that. And they all said the same thing. Like, unbelievably good elk hunt. Which proved to be true. So I thought you just would go and leave those elk and go find a whole bunch of other ones. Down in these bottomless canyons. And um, yeah, we just started wandering around out there. There were elk down there. We had to glass them up. And then they, you know, the other thing I was thinking about earlier is that 
all these campsites were full, but there were a lot of uh, spike and cow tags given out in that unit as well, right? I just, think the spike, just spike. Tag, just spike, and I think it was over the counter. Yeah, yep. anybody. That's the crazy thing too about Washington. And I remember hearing this because my brother lived in Walla Walla for a while. He's working on a salmon project down there and lived there. And you can like any Tom, Dick, or Harry can go into any of these units with his bow and hunt spike elk over the counter. So you get a. You get everybody goes like, "Do you have a bull tag?" That's what everybody. That's the first question out of everybody's mouth, because there's a lot of dudes scrounging around in there trying to scrounge up a spike elk, an adolescent male, a one and a half year old male elk. We which we maybe could have had a poke at one. We saw two spikes, mm-hmm. and one kind of hung out for yeah. a little bit. Saw a couple spikes. Yeah, we got some good shots of that guy. Yeah, had a spike stand there. Yeah, he stood there at seventy yards for a long time. Go ahead. I got a question. You want for to introduce like, yourself? Sure. Kelsey Johnson, Seth Galfren, new wildlife hunter. Wildlife artist. Wildlife artist, yes. Specializing in wildlife, and I actually do some gun dog portraits as well. Is that right? Is kind of my little specialty, yeah. You specialize in gun dog portraits? Yeah. Um, real quick, if someone wants yeah. to get a picture of their dog drawn up, how should they get a hold of you? Um, I show a lot of my stuff on Instagram. I have my email kind of on there for people that want to reach out to me. For, well, let's just go ahead and do, just tell them where it is now. Let's go. My Instagram? Yeah. It's uh, K underscore R-A-E Johns. Spell K- that part. J-O-H-N-S. So oh. that's kind of my little art. That's your art business. My little, yeah. But you also work in guy. the ag industry. Yep. Midwestern ag sales. Big egg. Big egg. Yeah, and, corn and, and beans. Big, big egg and big art. Yep. Big bucks down there. Yep. yep. So uh, real quick, just to, as long as we're on the subject. Okay. How'd you get in the business of drawing people's dogs? Oh, that's a good story. Um, well, I have done a couple just for family members. You know, people love their pets, right? So yes, they do. They, uh, I've, I've done a couple for family, friends, and then um, got connected with, I actually saw a photo that, Andy Tram from Muddy Shotter Media took of a gun dog from No Limits Kennels out of Heiser, Kansas. They just did a little photography photography session. Uh, I was looking for a challenging photograph to draw. Asked Seth to get me access to that photo and just was starting it for fun. Yeah, and Andy's my good buddy from back yeah. in Maryland. So who took the photo? Kind of got. I just was looking for a little challenge. You know, it was a, it was a good photo of a. German short hair with a bird in its mouth. And um, the owner of the kennel f- found out about me drawing that while I was drawing it. And then he, he wanted to buy it. So once his client base saw the drawing, they kind of, I've got a little niche down there in that area. The people that have dogs from that kennel asked me to do portraits of their dogs or drawings of their dogs. So, so but, but how is it different to draw a gun dog than a normal dog? Um, I guess it's really not, but like there's, you know, action shots or. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's people have more, it, more photographs taken of gun dogs. Yeah. So they'll have it toting a bird, toting a duck or whatever. Yeah. Better professional photos of, you know, people are more into that, I guess. I feel like more people take pride in their gun dog than yeah. just like some I don't lady, get any like Jean Frise. Mm-hmm. You know. And they tend to be a nostalgic lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, bird dog people. hunters are nostalgic and they tend to be aesthetes. Mm hmm. They have like an aesthetic sensibility. They're yeah. passionate about their animals, that's for sure. So it's it's fun to do. You know, I've 
gotten a lot of good feedback. It's kind of a nice little keepsake for them forever. So, but I bet you there's a healthy um, portion of New Jersey cat ladies that would like to oh, have. Dude, my I'd rather not tap into that market, <laughs> but hey. Yeah, my friend Mariah used to <laughs> paint, make some money. She used to paint dog portraits for people, and they sure as hell weren't um, hunting dogs. Really, but it, but yeah, you got to specialize, man. You got to get known within a certain mm-hmm. circle, so yeah. that's good that you're known I within that fell circle. Into this, I, I don't know. Who knows? I could. You're be. the only gun dog painter I know. Really? And you put it all up on Instagram? Yeah, and it's it's colored pencil, by the way. I, I, what do I keep saying? Paint. Paint. <laughs> colored pencil. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Seth showed us some of your work, and it's amazing. It's awesome. Go check it out on Instagram. Um, as long as we got sidetracked by it. then we have uh, Chris Gilridge, founder. Yeah, I'm here, cameraman, and then uh, and Seth Morris was with us working for us also for his first time. Yep, awesome trip. You liked it? Love it. You didn't do a bad job. Thanks. <laughs> Both these guys crushed you it. Three, man. Uh, you bought three kinds of cookies and they all missed the mark. <laughs> I tried. You like couldn't hell. make you couldn't make anybody happy, could you? <laughs> no. He almost won with the Oreos, but the, Who the, known? the double stuff. You yeah. almost think that would be impossible to go and buy three types of cookies, bring them back to a, a group of hungry guys, and have them all turn their noses up. <laughs> well, yeah, you think one, it would be impossible? I, to, I, I took a bite and threw it out. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I, <laughs> Could oh, not no. stomach <laughs> the one the like I'm white macadamia. Chocolate. Yeah, the I'm white chocolate. Pepper's white, farm. white chocolate. That's, pepper's farm. That's not Seth's fault. Anyone that walks into a grocery store, any American goes into a grocery store and here's all the cookies in the world laid out in front of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, whole aisle in America. Yep. And he's like, "Ooh, white chocolate macadamia." I mean, dude, no one <laughs> in the world does that, man. I. <laughs> it's one of my variety. favorite cookies. Get variety, yeah, man. Yeah, I like them. Um. Well, you, yeah. No, I, I want to make and do. I made do. You made do. Yeah. Well, then you you mentioned about how you would love a sleeve of Oreos. Oh, I, you're like, oh, I could pound a sleeve of Oreos right now. Yeah. And you went, I got I double got or- stuffers. Yeah. But I told I got- you that I, I'm joking because I like double stuffers. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Double stuff. Giannis had we something to say about rest, that. It was the rest of us that, yeah. that were scraping the filling out. Although I did eat probably close to a whole row over the course <laughs> of like a day. Yeah, Yanni's paranoid, paranoid about sugar. Interesting about the double stuff is it's only one F on the stuff. It's, it's not. It's not. It's double stuff. <laughs> double double stuff. stuff with one F. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The comedian Mitch Hedberg used to talk about how he had a girlfriend, Lynn, who spelled it with one N. And then later he had another girlfriend named Lynn who spelled it with two N's. But the, she could always tell. If he said the wrong Lynn, because he wouldn't go mm, as long as long, and so he'd get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he'd get in trouble for it. Uh, what was the, like? What was the f- actual first moment when we? Um, let me ask you this. So we go down and, and go. This is a question for Giannis because Giannis is actually the one. I'm the one hunting, but I'm not the one hunting. I'm the trigger man. Because Giannis is the one who's calling, which is the hard part. Like any dipshit can shoot something, but not anybody can call one in, right? That's the hard part. Absolutely. Absolutely. There were other hard parts for this hunt. Yeah, all the, the hiking around's hard. Yeah. Hiking around's Figuring hard. Figuring out where they are. doesn't matter. If you're calling, good at calling, but you're not in a zone with elk, that doesn't do you much good. Yeah, there's components to it, right? There's like There's a lot of components to it. There's... There's being like, in this particular spot, there's sort of finding them, which you can, anybody with a set of ears and a pair of binoculars is going to like find 
Within yeah, in two in forty eight hours of poking around, you would know where some elk you will were. find elk, but you will not be happy about where you found them, mm-hmm. because in this unit everything is below you. Mm-hmm. Because the way the land access works, it's like imagine this. Basically, you're hunting the entirety of a drainage, right? So you have the unit is kind of drawn around a drainage where you have the whole ridge line that forms the head of all the tributaries, and, you're, and the only access points are up high. Even the lower access points aren't really lower because you still have the canyon to drop down into. So anytime you look at an elk from a, from a road, you're looking down to the point where I think some people find that it just is impractical that you would pursue them. Yeah, one to 2,000 feet below you in elevation gain. Drop because you have to then move several hundred pounds of shit back up out of. You have to then pack several hundred pounds worth of stuff. Well, back that's up. if you're successful. But yeah. even just dragging your own butt up out of that hill after an unsuccessful hunt, I think gets real old to a lot but of people. But it's front of mind. I think it should be front of mind. Like one, just going down there and coming back out is hard. It's very hard country to travel in. But I think for everyone who's hunting elk, you also have this idea that that you got to carry this thing back up. And so you're like, man, I'm already miserable. What would I possibly do in a situation where, you know, and and it might be that, that you just can't hunt it like by yourself in that area. Most of those elk are just simply out of your reach. If you're hunting by yourself, some places and like, depending on where they're at, it's almost irresponsible to try to, take one by yourself yeah there is a packer that works that unit meat guy with mules you know that that said he can get anywhere in that unit but is that what he said yeah yeah i talked to him later but even then when we called him he wouldn't have been able to help us pack until the next day oh so we would have to hang the meat in the shade which may or may not have kept it cool enough and you know is that always his story or sometimes can he react I mean, if faster? He's, if he's in the unit, but I mean, there's only 14 people hunting. You know, how many people are, are actually going to call him? You know? So this is a mule packer who runs like a little little side business. Yeah. Just packing. Yeah, I got and I got his name through the outfitter that I chatted with. What's cool is the outfitter, too. We should talk about how we should name the outfitter because he was cool enough to give us a ton of intel, man. Yeah, it was Bo Olson of... Uh, wilderness adventures he gave us very accurate wilderness expeditions sorry yeah he didn't have any clients who were hunting that unit that year and gave us very accurate information about the unit yeah because he can do it because like he knows you're not going to be back it's Mm -hmm. too hard to draw the tag and he guides sheep hunters in there too yeah we saw a nice ram i was surprised we didn't see more sheep a lot of beds yeah a lot of droppings a lot of beds a lot of tracks i was thinking we'd run into more but we were really looking for him. That's true. But we were looking a lot. Yeah, but not looking, looking. True. We were, we were, looking, we were looking for tan, big tan sides. Yeah, when you're yeah. looking for elk, it's like a low-touch look. Yeah. It's not like looking for mule deer. That's true. Or coos deer, like, you know, yeah. glassing for big horns. You actually got to look, look. It's kind of like you can just kind of go like, oh, pretty much tight. There's not an elk on that hillside. Yeah. In that, there's not like some 600-pound buckskin-colored thing standing there. <laughs> You know, yeah. going, <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like if you had spent more time looking, you might have found more. But then we had a lot of eyeballs out there with a lot of binoculars. Yeah. So one ram. 
but a big, nice, beautiful ram. It was a beautiful ram. Yeah. It was a big one. Now, uh, Giannis, from a caller's perspective, from an elk caller's perspective, why were you not interested in, why could I not excite you in the idea of going and trying to work that bull who wasn't bugling? Because you're in it for the bugle. Yeah. Um, well, one, he Why do you have a Canadian shirt on? <laughs> it's a Stone Glacier hat, uh, t-shirt that has the uh, they didn't give you an American Canadian version? maple leaf on it. You know, I meant to ask him why they made it. Maybe you know the story behind it. A lot it. of Canadian they have sheep a hunters. A lot of Canadian outfitters and sheep hunters that they are using their packs. Yeah, yeah. the guy that wrote in about the full stadium. He was Cana- a Canuck. Canadian. So yeah, I don't know. I got nothing wrong, nothing against Canada. I yeah, love, I don't have anything against those fellers either. I've got a lot of friends up there, and uh, yeah, okay. I just you know thought of you as being a little more American than that, but that's cool. It's like a little you're doing like diplomacy right now. So there's a bull. So you don't want to bugle, and I can't get a, you interested in look trying to work him, trying to go around and work him. Right. So a couple things that I didn't really like about it. There was a road like 200 yards above him, which made it intriguing. Yeah, because you could easily get within 200 yards above him. No, what made it intriguing to me was that he was a hiding in plain sight. Mm. He was a bull who was hiding in plain sight, which made me interested in him. Yeah, because if you drove by on the road, it was so steep below the road that you couldn't see him. But dude, all day long, hunters passed within 150 yards. Because I shot a waypoint where I thought he was and then shot a waypoint and then measured up to the road. Mm -hmm. He's 150 yards. And not 45 minutes would go by when, uh, you know, yep. just watching hunters go back and forth, back and forth. And here's that bull just living out his deal. And they could, they could have, they could have so steep, you could have thrown a rock off the roadbed and hit that bull. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to have one of the 14 tags to begin with. It's just something about that bull I liked. I liked everything about his little style. And That's you had fine. to hike down into that drainage and up the other side to glass him up. Yeah, he just had the yeah. perfect. Well, because no, well, we glassed him up off the trail the first day. Remember? Oh, that's true. Off the Lake, yeah. Tree, Lake Ridge Trail. Anyways, uh, that hillside he was on was steep as could be. Did you ever, uh, real quick, did I ever send you that stuff of that buck in Pennsylvania that was wearing a radio collar and what that buck would do when hunting season came? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hide in the, the ditch? No, he would hide on the side of the highway. Yeah, in the ditch. This buck roamed all over hell all the time. Gun season would open, and he'd go set up shop about 50 yards off a highway. Yep. I've and heard not of, I've heard of that. Right underneath a deer jumping sign. Hiding in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Rick French told us about a place. There's like a saddle. And he was talking about his whole life. They've been shooting elk in this area. And there's a spot where they watch these elk go in bed. And they watch and they go in bed on a four-wheeler trail and lay 75 yards from a quad runner trail and just sit and watch quads drive by. Elk hunters. I believe it. Hiding in plain sight. I bet that happens a lot. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. 
I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch, and they lure you in with a one month trial, and you're like, oh, you know, I'll do the one month trial, then I'll come back and cancel, and then I can watch this whole thing, and then like you don't, you forget about it, and then and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys twelve bucks all year, and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight, and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. I was talking to my buddy Jimmy uh, Miller this morning, who's coming up to visit me next week. And he was saying he's been out like the last two or three week weekends hunting with his bow in Colorado. And every single animal he's seen, I think he's seen like two or three bull elk, half dozen cows, a couple bears, some moose. Everything's been off or near the road. As soon as he goes into the woods, he's seen zero. They're learning. 
more and more dudes are like willing to go farther to hunt. And All the hardcore dudes that are actually going to kill something are in the woods. And then the guys that are just driving by on four wheelers, you ain't got to worry about them, I guess. Yeah, they got it figured out. Like, they're going to, if I go deep in the woods, son's bitch is going to kill me. Yeah. I'd rather be out here with these guys playing lightweight ball. But you know what? The whole, this whole idea of roads and then being away from the road, being deep in the woods, that's only a thing that we've made up in our own heads. The deer and elk might not look at it that way. Yes. I think they look at that there's different types of disturbance. Mm-hmm. And I think that the sound of all day long, quad runners going by. <laughs> I think they probably don't even, like, I'm sure it registers them. They don't associate it with trouble. Oh, I've seen them associate it. That bull doesn't. That bull, no. So tell me why you didn't want to go work them. So he's on like a really steep hillside. So I figured like getting into, because it's not like you're going to stand on the road and start calling, right? Because I doubt that bull is going to be like, oh, yeah, there's probably a cow on the road. I'll go and see what she's up to. You think the bull is going to be like, nah, 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 I'm not falling for that. Super steep. So just like being, hunt, like trying to do a setup, setting up on a super steep hillside, it's just like you don't even, you can't find a place to stand. You might start descending that hill and slide down into him. It was that kind of a hillside. <laughs> yeah. Hey, watch out. Um, the other thing was so you didn't like he that. had two cows. And calm bulls away from cows can be a tough deal. And we knew that there weren't a lot of cows in this unit. We talked to some hunters that thought they had seen 25, 30 bulls and had seen half that in cows. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen is um, I've never seen it where you're, where there's bulls running, like groups of bulls hanging out and there's no cows. Mm-hmm. That was a beautiful thing. Just like just every elk hunter's dream yeah it's like you, you get to where you'd see an elk you just the assumption was that it was a bull yeah you'd be like oh my god a cow <laughs> if you saw one i have a question so like for the new hunter's perspective is this is that you yeah oh really yeah not a lot of elk experience is this like peak rut this peak area? rut definitely in the thick of it in the thick of it okay good like, to know for the story they are like very eager about uh going toward the sound of cow elk okay yeah uh it's too steep for you too steep he's got a cow he's not bugling watching him he what he just like was sitting there feeding with his cow with two cows and so you familiar with the word milk toast yeah he was that i don't know the definition yeah what's well milk toast? people see here's the deal man it's like it's spelled different than milk toast Milk toast is is like is it um, spelled like Q U E. I believe it's spelled like M I L Q U E. Means Ew. lame, indifferent, timid, or submissive. Yeah, it's a very milk toast bull. What's the spelling, Yanni? Like M I L Q U E, toast. But my whole life, I thought it was milk toast. Like, yeah. if you imagine a bland ass meal, and I don't <laughs> want to take toast and it. soak it in milk. <laughs> yeah. Right? You're like, dude, I don't want that. Yeah. My father, uh, his term for milk toast was a term because he's from Italian ancestry, was raised by Sicilian immigrants, mm. was raised by his grandfather. Um, my father had several things that he would use, terms he would use for people he didn't like, and they, were, they described different types of people. One of them was a horse's ass. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. That's like a very 
particular type of person he didn't like. Another was a putz, which sounds Yiddish. And that was like another type of person he didn't like, but definitely not a horse's ass. The guy's a putz. Another term for a just, person he didn't it, like. Just being like a, lacking a little coordination for putz? Is that what that was? It's like a, a grumpier old man. Yeah, a horse's ass would be like a blowhard. Okay. A putz would be someone who messes everything up. Like a, like a person just can't, incompetence. Yeah. Then there was a term, a mingula morta, which I've talked to people who speak Italian, and basically he was saying a person who has non-functioning sexual organs, dead, morta being dead, mingula being a, and I'm not saying the word right, but mingula, you know, he's, he's basically I saying I get it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So the bull was like a mingula morta. <laughs> <laughs> Bull. Well, that or he's just being super, super slick. Like he had his two cows, he had his little hidey spot. He's pretty happy. He's you know, he's got everything going for him. And he's you, saying because they were wolves, yeah, right? Because the wolves. Yeah. Do you ever find that there's a bull that uh that gets cows and shuts up? Oh yeah. Because he's like, why would I? Why in the world would I be like advertising my situation? Well, but the, you know, he still has to bugle right to the cow. Like there's the bugle between the cow and and him that goes on, not just between him and another bull, right? Yeah. I think I read once that when she says no, he has to bugle as like a sign of like res, like some sort of respect type deal. Oh come on, come on. That's in human terms. Okay. But as in like when it's like. He's saying, there, you mean the, when he bugles, he's saying, no problem, baby. Yeah. Like it's it's cool. I understand. We'll try again 10 minutes or tomorrow. Maybe five. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen, I've seen it happen a lot. There's like the, 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 you know, the herding or whatever you want to call it that he's doing. Tending. Pushing, tending, pushing them around. And then it, it's sort of like it gets close. It doesn't happen. And they sort of stop. He always bugles. But I've seen him bugle so softly that I could see him bugling, but I couldn't hear it at 200 yards. Really? I could see him go into the whole posture, stick his neck out, curls, you know, put his head up, see the steam come out of his mouth right after he chased the cow, and I couldn't hear him. I think that was why. I think he was just like, yep. I, and he had a bunch of cows. This one that I saw do this. He's just staying chill about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you so you couldn't you couldn't work that bull? Maybe, maybe not. I just didn't feel like it was uh, high high odds. You know, it wasn't worth it. From what it was going to take us, where we were, and what it was going to take us to bore out of this drainage that we were in, to go back up and out and put it, you know, put a half day effort just in getting to position. I just didn't feel like it was high enough odds that warranted that effort. That we should just keep hiking down the trail and go into some country we hadn't been into and strike up another one. Yeah, got you. Um. Man, there's so much to explain down in there around like how it like what our thought processes were. Cause there's too many, there's like too many options at a point in time, you know, when you're down in that area. Right at that point in time. Yeah. Just yeah, just wandering around, like and you get frustrated quick and and um then you get like that wolf stuff stuck in your head. Mm-hmm. Like, no, because we were thinking we're in like, you know, one of the best units in the state. 
And all of a sudden, it's been like 12 hours, haven't heard a bugle. 24 hours, haven't mm-hmm. heard a bugle. Well, when we were in that area, we didn't know about the wolf thing yet, right? No. Oh, we'd heard them ripping, though. Yeah, we'd heard them ripping, but we didn't know that they we were... saw their tracks. Didn't that, that we one didn't guy get the said, report later yeah. that he had been in there, had heard some elk... And, and shut them down. Yeah, because another came. hunter later was saying that, man, they were, going, they were going good in there, and then when the wolves came through, they shut up. And the guide that Giannis talked to also said that the year before, things were ripping, mm-hmm. meaning bulls are bugling. Pack of wolves came through, raising hell. And that it shut down for three or four days. Everybody just gets quiet. Seth saw a mountain lion. I did. Sitting. Sitting on its ass. Yep. Looking over a little mule deer spot. Yep. That was cool. Yeah, they're cool to see. You don't see that too often. No. And I don't view them as competition as much. No. But you really should. Yeah. You really should. Oh, Yeah. You think elk will shut up from them? I don't know, but they kill a lot more elk than wolves do. Not per one, but I mean, like, there's just there's just so much more widely distributed. I mean, they're everywhere, right? Yep. Like anywhere that has elk has a mountain lion. Well, not almost. Yeah. not the eastern almost. states, the western states. Yeah. Every elk has, is going to run into a mountain lion. Yep. You know, um, you when I was getting frustrated by the lack of bugles, and you, Giannis, felt that um, you felt that that it was just we weren't in the rut zone. Yeah, we were just in the wrong spot. It wasn't that they weren't doing it; it's just it's, this, we weren't in the place that they were doing it. And we slowly <laughs> just made a big long loop and ended up, you know, on the other side of the giant drainage that you d- described earlier. Where we back heard. to where Dave, Tom, Bill, yep. Doug, Will, <laughs> uh huh, and fourteen George, bulls. We're all working an infinite quantity of bulls out of a bowl mm-hmm. in a place where the outfitter we talked to said that you could just that you'd find a bull in every canyon. Mm-hmm. Where he actually recommended that we spend our whole week was in there. Yeah, and then almost kind of accidentally called in a bull. Yeah, I was calling a little bit just to do some locating to kind of take a census of what was out there, and uh, we had bad wind for this scenario. It's, the wind was dropping down the hill from the morning thermals. The air was cool, so it was dropping down the hill. And uh, I looked down below me, and a couple hundred yards away, here comes a satellite six point. And you always know you're in a good unit when like a like a nice six is a satellite and he's coming in silent. And a satellite bull being a bull that's like not a dominant figure in the herd. He's just not big enough. But how do you know that he not- wasn't the man? Because later there was a bull just cranking. In that same zone? I don't know. I just feel, I, I just I just feel like because he was coming in like quiet coming in quiet. Coming in quiet oh, and timid. I see what you're saying. Yeah. He was a sneaky Pete. Mm-hmm. He's like a you know a nice six point bull that you know I'd shoot any day. Um, That's the thing. This unit has a lot. This unit's kind of we now know is known for bulls that are like seven by sevens and seven by eights and crazy bulls. Yeah, I bet you we saw three or five seven by sevens. Yep. So this bull comes just creeping in and then crept out. Seth saw him creep away. Yep. He's caught, caught wind. wind. Yeah, definitely caught wind. 
So they come in to investigate, and then they quietly, without announcing their presence, go they say away. to themselves, "There's five dudes there. I'm leaving." Yeah. Smells like five. Smells dudes. like five. Saw dudes. three. Smells like five. <laughs> and we're doing we're doing zero scent control. No, we're just doing wind. Yeah, there's no point at that. What would when the scent control much, be? Like, what would you even do? A wide variety of things. There's masking scents. Okay, there's like odors that you could put on yourself to. I'm not saying these things work. I'm saying it's these are things that exist. Yeah. There are. There's a line of clothing. Yeah. It's been kind of debunked, scientifically discredited, but some people remain firm believers. And a line of clothing that has a filtration, carbon filtration system built into it that sort of scrubs your odor emanating from your body. And I think the problem with that is most of the odor emanating from your body is being exhaled. Mm. So they make a face mask to help filter your exhale. Is that really been proven that most of the odors actually just coming from your breath? I shouldn't say most, but just, but, but, but. You can wear clothes, but you're still breathing out. Yeah. I shouldn't say most, but a lot of odor. You're exhaling a lot of yeah, odor. Yeah, because I, I remember like there was like a hunter's uh, scent concealment gum that yeah, came around. Yeah, all that. My dad used to hunt with a guy that would, during hunting season, eat a lot of carrots. He tried to be food? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember hearing the old news one time say that all he drank was apple juice. So that, that way when he would pee during hunting season, it just smelled like apples. Um. Yeah, but then you got like Doug Buckman Duran. Yeah, Buckman. His, his urine draws in big bucks. Yeah. There's also, uh, I think that Cabela's made for Bill Winky a full Gore-Tex suit that had rubber gaskets, ankles, wrists, and neck, and then maybe even a hood. That, that, sounds, that, that sounds like a good thing to hike up and down. Dude, yeah, I was say, why not just wear a trash <laughs> bag and go stomp around? Pretty much. Yeah, so it wouldn't work for what we did. Yeah. yeah. For whitetail white hunting, you just have it like... Just the pants on, top hanging down. You hike into your stand slowly. Set up. Get in there, put the top on, seal it all off. Some people out west I, that I know do this, and they don't think that it completely breaks down, you know, keeps you scent free. But they look at it as in buying you time before an animal might spook from scent mm-hmm. and buying you distance that you can be from an animal before they scent you. But they will have a... um plastic tote that has complete that has clothes that they probably did some special sort of washing to to eliminate all possible scent no perfumes and dyes and whatnot in there probably has pine boughs in there and some dirt and leaves and whatnot but they have a separate tupperware for every day of the hunt and it includes everything from underwear shoes socks top bottoms base layers everything randy ulmer your belt yeah wow every day you swap out every day. Every day, you just yeah, and you do the best you can by taking some sort, some version of a shower, and then you put on those fresh clothes. So yeah. you're not walking around in clothes like because this it was a hot hunt this oh, week, and we were yeah. we were going through. I felt like a a sweat cycle twice a day. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, uh, okay, archery hunting whitetails. Like what my dad did and what we did growing up is you kept your hunting clothes outside hanging up in the breeze. Before you went out hunting, you would shower. We wouldn't use special soap. They make a lot of soaps with no deodorant, with no perfumes. 
Okay. Well, there's nothing I get more nostalgic about. Sorry to interrupt, but is that green? Is it Senaway soap? Yeah, yeah. Like Doug, like that lines all yeah. surfaces in Doug Duran's bathroom. Yeah, but I feel like ninety percent <laughs> of the Whitetail Woods like haunting camps. It's like there's like ten of those bottles in various levels of fullness in the shower, right? Yeah. It's like that green liquid. It's meant for your hair for everything. Steve Kendra's shower. Yeah, Steve Kendra's shower's full of that stuff. Yeah. And when, yeah, when I like get in a shower and see that stuff, like it's just a flood of memories of like, yeah, because that's what we did. Like, Same oh, exact thing. Products. Yeah. Green gel soap. So you would keep your clothes hanging up in the breeze, take a shower with preferably with a non-perfumed soap, put wear rubber boots that you clean. You don't go and buy gas with these boots on, right? You put them on when you're ready to walk to your stand. You don't go to the gas station and get unnatural. You don't wear them in your car. You don't even drive to your hunting spot in these clothes. You get to your hunting spot. You strip down. You put your clothes on that you've been storing in a separate container. And you walk very slowly so as to not break a sweat. Get in your tree stand. Put on your outer layers. And the hope being, of course, you're not going to like eliminate your scent, but like to buy you a few minutes. When I used to trap fox, um, which are difficult to catch, I would do. I would have a. I would have totes that I'd fill with straw, and I would keep my clothes and boots and all my other equipment in totes filled with straw, and then would use rubber gloves that you would wash fastidiously all the time and then keep your and then only wear those boots on natural ground in order to try to eliminate some of the scent you're leaving behind when you're trying to catch fox it's a lot of work but here like a basic here's what we could have done like here's the basic thing you do you at least bring some soap and some body powder Mm. and every time you hit a creek you try to scrub up a little bit yeah and a lot of guys, it's not too much either. And we weren't doing this because we were just working the wind. And we were in a place that had like steep slopes and a lot of thermals. So I was like, if you're willing to work thermals, and we did work them very successfully. Um, if you're willing to like do that, you can get away with this. But if you're in an area that's like just famously for swirled winds and stuff, and I think you had to do it and you were really just going to make the sacrifice, I think you at least have your sort of like daytime hill climbing clothes and you might keep in your backpack, in a bag in your backpack, your actual stock and clothes. And as part of your deal, when you're getting ready for the evening hunt or getting ready for the morning hunt, you wash up, put some body powder on. Um, people just take uh, baking, baking soda. Yeah, put it in a spray bottle, put some water mm. and some baking soda, scrub up, put your clean version of clothes on. And try to go about your business. But we just played wind. The question came up while we were there if the smoke was going to have any effect on scent, too. Because we were in a smoky area. It was smoky enough where it was annoying. And you got black black gunk coming out of your nose. You uh, wonder if it affects the elks. It has to help. It cannot hurt. There's no way it hurts. Right. Does it cover your scent? It has to. There's no way that they're going to smell you better amid all the confusion of a bunch of smoke in the air. It's not going to like enhance their ability to de- to detect smell. And then the other question was, <clears throat> was that activity in that area moving the elk out of wherever the 
controlled burns were in closer to where we were. I don't know about closer, but I would say that it displaced and probably concentrated elk into areas of low activity. And I think the fact that all those bugles are coming from the bot tend to be coming from the bottoms of those canyons is not accidental. I think that the gradual activity of humans being around, pressuring them, pressuring them, is has to have the effect of pushing them into places where they're just not getting messed with as much. I think if you'd left to their own device, they'd probably be higher up on the slopes. Think about that. Hard to say. More water <laughs> in the bottom. That's true. Um, so we keep on hunting. We eventually, and this is kind of how stuff goes, have all kinds of adventures. See a black bear, see a bighorn, see some mule deer, have a bunch of adventures. And there's a, there's a spot, there's a, there's a place we want to go hike. We want to like access a, a area of our unit where the only access point is sort of blocked by a big, very elaborate wall tent setup. Like these guys are practicing like siege warfare, man. They got like a camp. I mean, these guys like got splitting malls and stuff. They're splitting firewood. I mean, they're camped out. Archery target, backstop, trailers, generators, pots and pans hanging everywhere. They did two fifty-five gallon drums. I don't know what was in them. For drinking water? I have no clue. Barrels of presumably water and maybe fuel. I have no clue. Or maybe just food storage for bears. Could be. Camping. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's an extraordinary car Dude, on a setup. 1 to 10, on a 1 to 10, that's a 9 or a 10. Yeah, they were dialed. Mm-hmm. They had the wall tent and then like a, one of those like easy up canopies as like a porch. Yeah, yeah. they're running with, a porch. When you start running a porch, a tarp, yeah. <laughs> a tarp over the whole thing. Big setup. They'd been there 16 days. 17. 17 days. Yeah. Um, and I'm uncomfortable with uh, going and parking right next to their camp to hike in. Because, because this comes from being that we're filming. I'm really, I, I try to be sensitive of like people going to the woods or going to the mountains to have peace and quiet. And, and enjoy a level of anonymity, presumably. And so I'm always a little bit leery about like rolling up on people with five guys carrying cameras and just, you know, I try to be sensitive to that because I, I wouldn't really love that a whole bunch if that happened to me. So I want to park elsewhere and then kind of like slip through their camp, um, park elsewhere and slip through their camp real quiet and go down below and start hunting right below their camp. But we have them to show up at just a minute that they're rolling in with a bull. <laughs> like they're just like, uh, we like arrive at their camp at the, like honestly the second that a truck pulls in with a dead bull's skull and meat in the back of the truck. And this is the funny thing about a specialty unit like this too, like a hard to draw unit because no one has any ownership. No one has any sense of ownership over like their spot. You're not coming back. Or like they said, it'll be six years and you'll have a whole new crop of elk that yep. you'll be working. So he, so it's not like a most place where no one's going to tell you anything. You know, you'd be like, hey, where'd you get that limit of mallards, right? Then no one's going to say anything to you about it. 
like I know now not even to ask. I'll be I'll be like, hey, what mountain range were you in, or what like river were you hunting? But but this guy, he had his. Ta- it took him six points. Took so he had six unsuccessful application years. Drew the unit, and he just spills the beans because who cares? Someone told him about it, and it's this little corner of the unit where um, this little corner of the unit where you're kind of on national forest land, but boxed up against some private stuff. And he describes an area where there's seven or eight bulls um, that they were like butchering a bull and there's more bulls bugling a hundred yards away. Mayhem and craziness. Yeah, sounded good. And we go down into this area, and it was like, it was sort of the elk hunting. It was the elk hunting that you always dream that you would experience, but somehow never get to experience. But there it was. Yeah, we're going to skip forward to there. It, it, we've been on it a long time, and I want to spend time on yeah on. No, I understand. I just want to make sure that you're already jumping ahead to that. Yeah, because I want to spend particularly time on the one. The, we'll talk about the one we got, but the the setup where you called in a a a, a scattering of bulls mm-hmm. into a location. Right. We go down in this area, and there's some uh, not a lot going on, but some bulls ripping. Beagling here and there. And yeah. It's like wood. It started as a slow morning. Right? Yeah, it started Daylight, as a slow morning. We heard almost nothing. We heard a couple distant bugles. We kind of get to the edge of the private property. It sounds like there's one on the private. Then maybe a different bull, you know, bugles. But it's not like it's not a big rut ball like we were expecting, like we've been told about. Yeah. But eventually we get where like oh, there's a few bulls going. Like later in the morning, and it's mixed. It's like half open grassland and half dense timber very they a pretty steep area and we're kind of like halfway between the the top land like halfway between the ridge tops and halfway between the bottoms and you can hear bulls enough where you couldn't even really tell who was what right just was like a bunch of bulls going off and you start calling walk through how that went what you were doing well, first, we got to a spot that seemed like a good spot for a setup. And what I usually look for, most importantly, is I like to have a break in the terrain that I can hide behind that was going to, if the bull wants to come and see what's making the noise, he's going to have to come and look over that break in the terrain, whether that's like a thick strip of vegetation he's got to come look through, or most oftentimes in the mountains, it's going to be some sort of a ridge or like a horizon that you could be 200 yards away from it, you could be 20 yards away from it, but if you want to see over it, you're going to have to come right to the edge. Yeah. Picture the worst-case scenario would be that you're in a room and there's a loud noise of a cow and a bull comes into the room and he's like very quickly able to say that there is definitely not a cow in this room. Mm -hmm. That would be a bad situation. Yeah. The best situation is he'd be like, where is she hiding? There's so many places she could be. Yeah. Or, yeah, you're forcing him to come to the doorway. Yeah. 
to be able to look into that room. He needs to come in and walk around the room. Yeah. No, just stick his head through the door. <laughs> at that point, at that point, if we've done everything right, you ought to be able to get a shot as long as he's not, you know, facing some wonky direction, you know. But if he comes in there to look inside the room and go, what's going on in here? It, then that should be like the point of the shot. Yeah, and this was a knife edge. It was like if he's a in the hallway and he's not going to come to the doorway. You're probably not getting a shot. Yeah, and this is a this is a knife edge ridge. Yeah, it's like a, we're going we're walking down a ridge. It's kind of steep, but it drops off even steeper to the left and to the right. The hill just sort of wraps around, and he's bugling in this timber to our right that's wrapping around. And uh, yeah, so you pick a tree to set up in front of with uh, Chris. Just a I don't know. Western hemlock or a Doug fir, maybe probably oh, one. But of the I two. picked a bad spot. Yeah, in well, hindsight, good spot for me, man. I got all the footage. But <laughs> yeah, but reinforced bad spot in two ways. But it, I, I won't explain why it was a bad spot until we get to the part where the bulls started coming. Okay, so uh, yeah, I just um, I'm trying to think. Lauren, I actually started out on the ridge. Because, like, until I feel like there's no reason for me to actually start hiding in that bedroom, in air quotes, until I know he's coming. Until then, I might as well stay kind of where I can see a lot and sort of be digesting the situation. And um, because I might see him 100 yards away, I might see his antlers moving through the timber, and then I can adjust if I don't hear him down there or something. Yeah. So I just kind of hide in plain sight, just kind of sitting around, calling, and just seeing if we can get him worked up enough to at least move in our direction. The antlers on elk, that's a point I want to bring up real quick. The antlers on elk are extremely useful for hunting elk, Mm -hmm. calling elk, because you're always going to see that bull. Not always. There's a good chance you're going to see that bull before he sees you. By seeing his antlers. Yeah, because he's got these things sticking two, three feet, right? So when he's like rolling up over a hill, he can't see what's up ahead, but you're like, oh, that happens time and again where you get to glimpse him before he even has a chance to glimpse you and then take take the necessary action. Yeah. Yeah, so I just started with uh, some light cow calling, which would be just a couple mews here and there. And uh, he seemed pretty responsive, you know, bugling pretty good. Bugling right on top of it. Yeah. And then. Uh, which doesn't really mean that much. Like, you're not getting all excited at that point. No, well. I'm not. I'll tell you what makes me excited is what happens next. It's better, <laughs> better than him <laughs> not bugling. Yeah. No, 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 no. You're right. But as we saw a night or two before this. You can make bugle, you can make you can sit there and make bulls bugle for two hours, right? Yeah, and you can be trying to read into what they're doing, but after a time, you'd be like, that thing will not budge. Mm-hmm. So just getting them, just getting them to bugle doesn't mean much. No, what means something is all of a sudden it's quiet and he rips again, and he has very definitely moved way in your direction. Then your heart rate goes. Yeah. Then your heart's in the back of your throat. So at that point, I'll sort of, I, I fell off that ridge to the left, metaphorically, and got down there where I was in the bedroom. He was going to have to come and, he was going to come out onto that spine and look down that hill to see, you know, the cow that he thought was down there. And so, yeah, I continue to call. And um, I, I, it, usually at some point, like if I don't feel like the cow calls are doing enough, I'll start to add in like, oh, another bull is showing up 
to be like, hey, dude, if you want to, you know, if you want in on this party, you better get over here because someone else just showed up. And so I'll do a couple of things to imitate that. One, you can bugle, sound like a, a bull bugling and sort of challenge the other bull. And then you can make a lot of loud noises like a bull is tending a cow, which if you've ever seen them in the wild, they're, they, they, they chase them. And so they get run through bushes and they're cracking sticks. They're rolling rocks, especially on Plain steep. Plain grab ass. Yeah, especially on steep hillsides. And so I'll start doing that. To the point of working up a sweat a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Yanni puts on, put, takes off his jacket, puts on gloves, grabs a big old log, and starts beating the snot out of the woods. Yeah. Hurtling rocks, kicking, <laughs> jumping, banging. Yeah. The beating the snot out of the <laughs> woods is more like you're raking a tree. Yeah. That's kind of what you're going after. When you start stomping and running and jumping through stuff, you're sort of like acting like two elk. Which is, you know, you're talking about now over a half a ton worth of animal probably running through the woods. I'm only 200 pounds. It's hard to replicate that, right? You have to do a lot more. So a lot of times I'll pick up like a 10 or 20 foot log that then touches more bush as I'm moving through <laughs> the woods. And I definitely get hurt doing it. But <laughs> I think most Dude, it's effective, man. Most people uh-huh. here, some of the people here where I think we're so blown away by the situation, it's probably hard to even like grasp what all is going on. But I feel like Seth and you can attest to that, and probably Lauren too, that when I would do that the very first time, the bull would go from like a pretty excited bugle to like his insides turning inside out or however you want to put that. Like just like almost going from like a bugle whistle into more of like a blood curling football. Yeah. Just like, He's going, ah! Ah! yeah. Ah! I yeah. can't take that. <laughs> uh, talk about your epiphany, your elk calling epiphany. When people tell you to go in the woods and call three times for the whole day. Mm. Yeah. When I learned or was taught about calling elk, it was all diaphragms. There was a couple biting bulls probably on the market back then and probably some external reads too. I just hadn't really gotten into it yet, but it was diaphragms and everybody taught us like very soft, simple cow, what I would call a cow chirp, just a, and go into a meadow an hour before dark with the wind right, wait for the thermals and make two or three of those chirps between the time you get there until you're about to leave. And, and that was it, because that's just how you called elk. Because no anything beef. else was too much. Too much. You're just going to run them out of the woods. And so, and it took me years. And you know, and of course, reading books and watching Primos, uh, the truth about bulls videos and stuff, and being like, you know what, I'm going to try some other stuff. And then I got good enough with a diaphragm where I could go. And then all of a sudden, a five point comes trotting over the hill, and you go, "Oh, well, that kind of worked, you know." So, but it took three or four years to talk myself into trying it. To have the boldness, it makes me uncomfortable. Super fun to watch and film Giannis going off like he's an elk in the woods. He <laughs> had such enthusiasm throwing logs over, rolling rocks down the hills that I wanted to join. And I'm holding the camera, trying to keep the camera steady. But I'm like, I can probably help him out here. I want to kick a rock yeah, down there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you how to throw rocks. Okay, Yanni, here, here's the way of expressing this. Yanni makes so much noise that at one point, I'm jumping ahead, at one point a bull comes in between us 
and spooks and runs off down the hill. And it caught my attention like, whoa, oh, that must be Giannis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought the same thing when that happened. I heard that and I was like, oh, Giannis back. And they were like, hey, what about the bull that was standing between us? And it didn't even, because we were so fixated on what was going down below us. I was like, wow, that really sounds like a damn elk running off right there. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. He's got it down now. (laughs) Yeah, so eventually, you know, so there was was a a six-point bull. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the idea that there's multiple bulls. Yeah, and two are getting closer. Yeah, but I think that the young five point is what broke the six point. A satellite bull came in quiet. He didn't come in quiet. He did not true. Oh, you no. saw him bugle. I watched him bugle oh. multiple times. Well, there you go. But I want to talk about where I messed up. Okay, we're on this ridge. I'm calling it a knife edge ridge, but it's like a half bevel. It's a one sided bevel knife where. It breaks away very steep and rocky to the from from if you're looking downhill, looker's left breaks away very steep and rocky, and to the right is a gradual timbered roll. And the, the bulls are the main bull we're calling to who's bugling the most is off to the right. I set up where I'm basically out in front of a tree, right on the knife edge ridge thinking that he's going to stick to his course and come up and I might get a broadside around him. I should have anticipated. I should have not been on that knife edge ridge because what wound up happening twice is bulls came up and hit that and it's the perfect place to travel. It's just this nice, clear... They came up the ridge from the bottom. It's beautiful, clear, descending ridge. Even later, damn bull cow, bull cattle came up the same ridge. Mm-hmm. It's just like a natural travel corridor, and I didn't anticipate that, stupidly, I didn't anticipate that, you know what, I bet this thing is going to hit this ridge and take this ridge up so that I'm sitting on the ridge looking down expecting to get a shot off to my right, and all of a sudden, like without any announcement, besides some early bugling, here he comes, like dead, like he's not stopping. Face to face. And there's one dead tree in front of me that was six, seven yards. Close. Very close. And the second his head gets behind that dead tree, I draw my bow. And I'm like, what am I even going to do? Unless he comes out broadside. Mm. He, of course, sees me draw my bow through the trees. And we just have a stare down through a tree. That was intense, man. Until I couldn't hold my bow back anymore. But a lot of times in that situation, man, it could have so easily gone the other way yes. where he sees you, but he still takes two or three steps. It comes out from the tree, and instead of turning his whole body, he only turns his head and looks at you, and he goes, oh, what was that? And all of a sudden, he, he's just presenting you with like a perfect oh, opportunity. Uh, yeah. Listen, know? this is all hindsight. Because even when I had my bow back, I was, I was expecting that he'll step out from behind the tree, and he'll be turned broadside thinking I might be leaving but looking at me, but he was so close it wouldn't have mattered. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he did. He spun. But he spins, and all of a sudden here's another bull coming up the same exact trail. So that was the five point that did that first, and then the six point came in behind him. And then there's a six point stander, and the six point was much warier. Never came into never came into range. The five point is so convinced that. There's a cow. 
He's like, yes, there's a man with a bow here too. <laughs> Let me uh, try a couple different angles of approach. And he kept getting lucky and lucky. At one point, him and the six are both standing perfect wide open broadside at 67 yards, which I'm not going to, which is not a poke. I'm going to attempt with my bow mm-hmm. um, on a living, breathing creature. And then they're both standing there staring. The six leaves and he's just gone. He goes off and starts bugling a hundred yards away again, but he's done coming in. And meanwhile, this five point is just like probing, trying to find a path in. And then unbeknownst to me, eventually finds a path in and comes in between me and Giannis. Yeah, I mean, he's basically just on that knife ridge, just like, I don't know, 10 or 15 yards behind you, 10 <laughs> yards from me, 15 or 20 yards from Lauren. And he sits there and half-acidly feeds and just lifts up his head, looks, 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 feeds a little bit, lifts his head up, looks, 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 looks. I had no idea what was standing there. And the wind must have been blowing to him. And that's what's crazy is that even though like he's getting whiffs of man guaranteed at this point, and he still stood there for... It seemed like a long a minute. Yeah. It seemed like a minute. I mean, footage is full frame bull standing there, kind of wondering what's going on. And we're so focused on what's going on below us because there's still bulls ripping and wandering around below us that I had no idea that he's just standing there. Even when he ran off, I was like, oh, yeah, this is making an elk running noise. I think one of you guys that figured it out and spin, spun around that he was standing there. I don't know. There was some movement down below. No, I never knew till I was told. We have a little powwow and talk about what all's going on. Um, Like, holy cow, I can't believe that happened. So close. And all of a sudden, there's another bull coming. And one or a new bull comes in, gets wind, takes off. The same bull's messing around. Meanwhile, down below us, there's all these other bulls still going off. And then it starts getting hot, and they settle into like a dark north-facing slope. And it winds up that just for an hour plus, probably, you just hear two bulls calling. We're watching other damn bulls wandering around. But two bulls are just calling and calling and calling from this north-facing slope. And north face is significant because... It's not as sunny, and so you have a lot of timber and thick understory, and they can go in there and get in the shade and hang out for the day, but they're just calling and calling and calling and calling. And by now, the day's heated up, so now you have the uphill thermals. And we make a pretty roundabout plan to go in a roundabout fashion and circle around and get upwind of this bowl, this little timbered bowl where these elk are hanging out. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy my stuff online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. And get in close enough to shake hands. Almost. I thought we'd be within 300, but I think we ended up being within 100 when we set up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was close. No, I think we were about 170 yards. 170. Where does that number come from? My GPS unit when we trailed him. I think he came off that. I think he came off that same. My feeling he was up in that same bedding area. Because when, because when you first cow called, what did I say to you, Pounder? I don't remember. I said he's up on that ridge top up there. And oh, I said you yeah. can come forward. Oh, that's right. And we had to bump. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said, well, it's safer now. He's up high. Yeah. And he quickly, like, Started. very quickly, not up high. Yeah. But I think he rolls up out of those beds that we later found. Yeah. 
It's interesting that from our perspective, it sounded like he was below you. Yeah, he's no, 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 not that first. He was higher than eye level at first, for 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 seconds. He was, it didn't take long at all, and he was on the move. But there was two bulls that were in there. Yeah, but one was bulls everywhere. Yeah, it's like if I put my how do you explain this? If I put my two hands together, the bull we killed was in my right hand. That that bull. And the bull we didn't was like in my left hand, up higher. Because that that thing kind of like from our perspective had like this two bull like it seemed like two separate timber bowls that actually weren't that way once we got in there. You know what I'm saying? But the bull that we were mainly after when we first when you first called, he was higher than eye level. And there's all those beds up there. That was not good. I was trying to prevent that. When we went in there to set up, I did not want to be below him. I thought he was below us. Just no. from where yeah, from where we from where we were, it just I thought it sounded like he was below us, but we set up a little bit higher than you guys, you know, when we started yeah. calling, so I felt well, I mean it doesn't matter, especially either way. Yeah. Either way, he ends up below you, which is where we wanted him because we yeah, had a and great we had, thermal. And we had a setup where we had a really – probably the best wind we'd had the whole trip. And you had that, that same thing, a different kind of barrier, but like a, a barrier. Basically like a little rock, a rocky ridge spine. Oh, same exact thing, yeah. And we get set up like we don't know really know – before he starts calling, we don't know where the bull's going to come from. We don't know where he is. We don't know what his avenue of approach is. So you have to kind of get in a spot where you got a little bit of a game plan about, well, if he seems to be this way, it will go there. Do I have a shooting lane? If he seems to go that way, I'm going to duck over there. Do we have a shooting lane? And we kind of had a number of scenarios. I, I had three setups in my head where I could stand at one spot and know that I could duck 20, 30 feet to my right and have shooting lanes going for one approach. I could bounce out and get out in front of her behind a Ponderosa and cover a bunch more. And in the off chance that he somehow circled way up higher than us, I knew that I could go out around this rock outcrop and see up that direction. And you had in your head places where you could go to keep it where he couldn't see the source of the noise. It was very like pretty perfect situation. It wasn't one of those like make do things. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, we knew his, he, there was only so much timber that he could be in. And, uh, and it's 1130. He's not he going can. anywhere. It's a hot day. It's a hot, sunny day at 1130 in the morning. And he's in his bed and location, and he's not going anywhere unless yeah. you spook him. And we were, we were within 50 yards of the edge of the timber. Yeah. So it wasn't like we were trying to call him a mile away. No. Which can be a big-time hindrance, which I think is what you were talking about when we worked those three other bulls. They're not in your strut zone. Yeah, like you were just, we were just not close enough to pressure them. Yeah, we worked some other bulls where we had watched one of these bulls, and he kind of had like his place, where he, his little area where he'd wander back and forth raising hell. And we're trying to like invite him into some other part of the mountain, which calling turkeys, I think, is the same thing. It's hard to like... It's harder to call a turkey into some place he's not hanging out as it is to call him over to a different part of his hangout zone. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and the biggest reason we did that is because the the uh, the opportunity to get closer really wasn't there. Yeah, it was burned. It was open. wasn't a lot of timber. Just wasn't a lot of sp- places where we can circumvent his position. You know, without making like a four hour tour. And as soon as you started going on this bull, he got out of his bed and he was pissed, but he did not want to leave his timber patch. So he trapped. Sa- it's a pissy sound sounding sound but he's actually not pissed no i know but it's just an expression yeah. no he's definitely not pissed no he's, he's excited <laughs> i guess you say he's pissed because um because the sound that he makes sounds, sounds like yeah. sounds, sounds, like if you were projecting that sound you'd be like i'm gonna punch a hole in the wall you know or you think of a bull that not a bull but a cattle bull bull cow right? they get mad when he he grunts and snorts when he's pissed but he's pissed I'm not that familiar with the vocalizations of moo cows. You never been like snorted at by cows that are mad at you? They don't mm-hmm. want to make love to you. <laughs> they want you to get out of it. Yeah. So you say like pissed, but he's definitely not pissed. He's in, he's, he's, uh, this isn't a word I like to throw around lightly. He's titillated. Mm. <laughs> he's titillated by the sounds and is very excited. But he's also not wanting to he's also been around the block long enough he's old and he knows that there's we things we didn't know it at the time no but we no had, i had, knew because the sounds he was making were the sounds he was making raspy it was big bull. he reached down ridge pounder's throat and grabbed dude ridge pounder's heart <laughs> I, ridge pounder couldn't handle it anymore thank god there's he image stabilization on that lens dude because i was like when he finally came up into view, oh, I could see him like kind of pacing below through the trees. And I was like, seeing that, I was already like, oh my God, I shouldn't be seeing this. And then when he came up the hill and was like looking at us, and was like looking at me as I'm filming him, I, it, yeah, I was just rattling. Like, if, if you had had enough, you had said you'd had enough even before session, that happened. Oh my God, dude, yeah. He emotionally couldn't like, handle I it. I can't take another one. I'm going to have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> it's so intense. And he's just right there, and then he just like turns and faces us and just lets one rip, and I'm just like trying to make sure that I like the whole time I never looked at him in person, I don't think. Yeah, you found it emotionally taxing. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. It's hard, man. I just kept looking through the camera and that was the only thing that kind of like They're so big. Especially this one. And they want it so bad. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah, it was intense. A slave to one's passions. Mm-hmm. A slave to one's passions. To his detriment. It'd be like if you were single and you got a and and you get a booty call from someone in the, at late at night if the bars close. Mm-hmm. And you're like, man, there's probably a 30, 40% chance that someone's gonna shoot me when I go over there. <laughs> <laughs> but nah, nah, I'm gonna risk it. <laughs> I'll go over there. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> but this dude. And I knew he was big because everything about the sounds he was making. Because at that point, we'd watch the number of like big bulls bugling. Yeah. And you get, there's like, it's sort of you get tuned into like the wee, like, and then there's a, ah, and there's like a thing at the end of their bugle that just is. You could like feel the weight at the end of the bugle. And you could be like, oh, fuck. Like you wanted to go down and offer him up a Hall's methylliptus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's the a big difference bugle. between where I was and Seth and Lauren on one side of the ridge, and you got to be like you were in the bowl with him. Yeah, and like yeah, there's a whole different 
sort of like the, the, the acoustics are different. Yeah, there. the acoustics, just the space of the, that the sound takes up. It's pretty wild when you get oh, to be on, you, on their same hillside and they're doing. And that. you can just you can pinpoint them. So you're seeing his movements, you know, you're, you're, you're not, it's almost like it's so, he's so close and you can pinpoint the noise so exactly that it's like, you're not actually watching something because you're looking into a timbered bowl with a lot of brush. You're not actually watching it, but it, you, you like, it kind of occurs to you that you're not watching it because you feel as though you're watching it because the sounds are so constant and, and, and allow you to pinpoint him. Just looking right down where it's yeah. happening. You feel like you're like observing him wandering around. And then you realize, well, I'm not even seeing him, but it's just like the audio is so spectacular. Yeah. That I'm, it paints this very vivid picture. And he's doing a number of vocalizations. He's making a cow call, but not. Yeah. I, you know, I think that was the first time I'd ever heard that. He would kind of go, and then bugle. Yep. And odd. he's just going boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom. He must have done that 40 times. A lot. Boom, a lot. Boom, boom, boom. He seemed to do it when he was walking. Yeah. Pacing. Boom, boom, boom. I got a question for you guys. Glunking. So, like, you know, when you're turkey hunting, you got to bring them in close. And if you're whitetail hunting with a rifle out east, because this is the first archery hunt I've ever done, but the other two hunts that I've been a part of where you get close to the animal are like out east whitetail like midwest whitetail where like you're generally pretty close and turkey where you get pretty close but like you don't like when i saw those animals come in i wasn't like oh my god this is crazy but like when that elk came in it was like a an experience because they're so much bigger than you are yeah in the in the in the there's so much more that can go wrong yeah, maybe that was. There's like a when turkey's coming, about, you're like, eh, I got it. I get excited, but it's not dread. Yeah, when a bull's coming, it's it's like that's what you're there for. Yeah, but for me, it's sixty percent dread. <laughs> yeah, dread that I'm gonna spook it, dread that I'm gonna wound it, dread that whatever. It's just not. I'm not in a happy spot. No, when a turkey's coming, I got a smile. <laughs> it's ear to ear man yeah it's all up yeah turkey time i'm like yeah cool turkey's <laughs> coming this is great when a bull's coming i'm like, like oh no no man <laughs> go back down no. <laughs> oh my god no but yes he's coming <laughs> yeah. there's no getting out of this now <laughs> you've done it to yourself man <laughs> now you just gotta like take it yeah you just gotta take it something <laughs> is really gonna happen yeah like this is really going on man it's a this is a big this thing a is big coming the pressure's high you know not only for the hunter but the camera guy oh like, dude yeah so that adds to your intensity beyond because you don't want to mess it up just like your bow shot you That's know it's that important of. don't mess the shot up well here comes this bull and you're looking at the screen you're not looking at reality. Yeah, you're looking through this camera lens, and it becomes, you know, am I focused? Am I, yeah, am I doing this yeah. right? Is everything coming together? Because this is the five seconds I have to nail it. And we've got five people in there. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people. We got a caller, a hunter, and three camera people. Yep, it's a lot of stink. It's a lot. Yeah, a lot of variables. So this bull 
Well, I was talking to you about like, you know, there's 3% chance you can walk in, you're going to get shot. This bull knows enough. He's been around the block enough to know that he does not want to leave that timber line. Was very reluctant to leave that timber line mm-hmm. and just paced up and down, not wanting to go out into the open, out into the grass and come up the hill. Just walk in the timber line, screaming in agony. Yeah. But not. He's just real happy and excited. Giannis is making him feel like <laughs> there's another bull right over that ridge but, line. But no, you never gave the, another bugle. No, but that, you gave him the sounds. On that, on that setup, we never went to the other bull. Didn't need it. It was just no, cow calls. You, but you busted ground, didn't you? You were rustling around. Yeah, a you rustled. Bit. Oh, rustled around a little bit, but more just like just general elk. If an elk's on a steep hillside just feeding, they're making more noise than you than just a couple cow calls here and there. You know, it's just adding some just some depth to the picture I'm trying to paint. You know? Yeah, you didn't go full Yanni on them. No, no. But you were making some. You were making the ground noises too. Yeah, you were, you were pulling grass out of the ground, making mm-hmm. it sound like they're feeding. That yeah. was that was pretty smart. Wow. Yeah, he gets detail oriented, man. Mm-hmm. Pulling That's grass. I don't know what the hell he's doing. When he started ripping up grass. I was like, eh, it's working. <laughs> and he, you, like Yanni, wore that bull down. Yeah, he finally had to come and stick Eventually his head like, into the bedroom. Oh man, I'm gonna have to walk up out of here now because the wind was just—he had not a prayer. Because what he wants to do more than anything is he wants to go around and get a whiff. Yeah. He's like, I'll tell you when it's a cow. You don't tell me when it's a cow. I'll go up and have a smell. Mm-hmm. But there's no way for him to do that without really doing some kind of roundabout trip out in the open at noon on a hot, sunny day. There was no, there was no way for him to do it. And I think he was aware of that in his own elky way and eventually just was like, okay. And... A smart elk hunter, typically, a smart bow hunter, typically, and this is a lot of experts will say this, including our good friend Jason Phelps, the game call maker. Um, he's like, sure, there's a risk of you being out in the open when someone's calling for you and you're and you got the bow. There's a risk of being out in the open, but because you're going to get spotted more easily. But the risk of you being out in the open isn't as great as the risk that comes from you being not having good shooting lanes and having obstructions. So he's like, sure. When there's a tree and you're in front of the tree, you're more exposed to the bull. But that's not as bad as being behind the tree and having so many places you can't shoot. Very common mistake, I think, early on in bow hunting elk. But our first setup when you called in the multiple bulls, I was out in front of the tree. And it was good. In this setup, it was blazing sun. To be out in front of the tree, you were illuminated like something on display. And he had a lot of ground. He had a lot of open ground to cross. And it wasn't like a confusion of trees. It was like a tree and a ton of open space he had to cross. And I felt that I was just asking a little bit too much. So I got up where a, a small ponderosa was between me and the bull's line of approach, and I snapped some limbs, which mm-hmm. fit in because there was a lot of, Yanni was making some noise anyways. 
I just like busted off the limbs, not even trying to be quiet. Just grabbed them and snapped the limbs off and had a couple pockets. And I was trying to will that bull up the left side because I had good cover and a great shooting hole through the tree if he broke to my left. But he starts coming and he breaks to my right. And now in the psych, like in the, for me, man, like, I get rattled. I've I've done enough like rifle hunting. I'm like almost clinical about it. Um, got to do like an almost clinical space about shooting my rifle in in real world hunting situations. But with a bow, it's just things are so close, and you're so aware of the mistakes you can make, and there's so many more mistakes you can make, and it's so much less forgiving that all that stuff enters your head. And and I've got it distilled down. Like I've I've mentioned this a hundred times before. When I was a kid, my dad would put a sticker on our bow. He had these stickers that said, "Stay calm, pick a spot." Um. Now my little mantra that I try to put in my head is like, "Elbow up, pick your spot. Elbow up, pick your spot. Elbow up." Because I'm like, if I can remember to do those two things, I feel that everything else falls into place. Like if I can just like get it in my head, like and do that. That's like the baseline of my that that's the of, of my like personal checklist like everything else falls into place if i'm doing that and this bull mingled so long and when he first showed up i was so rattled but i got he lingered so long that i that i got unrattled and i got my mantra in my head and i was ready you know i felt like i was ready and i felt like i was ready to place an arrow and he starts coming and i was like feeling very confident and very confident and he comes up and sure enough he comes up with this in line with the center of my tree where there he is in range and i'm like why did i not get in front of the tree why did i get in front of the tree and then it puts you in this like negativity spiral that starts to happen he breaks out and then he's like looking at me like not knowing what he's seeing but looking at me um turns away i get a range on him he's 32 yards but obscured by the tree he moves and so his left his right side's facing me then he kind of turns so his left side's facing me and at this point he's very interested in what i am because i'm trying to like get and i have to get down on my knees but he doesn't budge and i get down on my knees and i get my bow back and he doesn't budge and i got where i felt like things were exactly right and i had my spot picked i had the right pin in the right place i had my elbow up i had i thought everything was perfect i touched that release and hit him back behind the ribs and my god the feeling of of failure and self-loathing that like overcame me in that moment of being that um like my brother put it best man like for me like my perspective put it best where when he messes up a shot, he's like, why am I so greedy and want this so bad that it actually in, that it actually impairs my ability to do it? Like I'm self, I want it so bad that it becomes self-defeating. So I can punch paper all day long with my bow and call my shots, all ranges all day long, punching, punching, punching. But the minute it's something I really want bad, I can't do it. Like when it matters, it all falls apart. Rogan says it's consequences. He says we're like we become intimidated by consequences. Mm. Isn't that how he put it? I forget. 
It's interesting. Yeah. So you enter an arena. I was talking about this with raising kids, where I don't mind putting them into an arena of consequence, meaning I don't mind letting them play with a hatchet. Um, and I think a lot of parents are afraid of letting their kids inhabit an arena of consequence. But the like, when you're pulling a bow back and trying to kill something that weighs 600 pounds with an arrow, it's like the the the, the consequences get so high. And all of a sudden, there it is, like the easiest shot. Like in all the target shooting, I could never shoot an arrow that far off at that distance. But there it was. And my God, was that like the, one of the worst moments for me. I've been through it before. doesn't get any better. No, I didn't get to see it. Well, in, in your defense, too, we did review the footage, and he clearly jumped the string he was gone before that arrow left the bow man clearly jumped the string yeah seems like it. it's hard it's like it's so hard to piece it together but it seems like he was sprung yeah no there's but a, do you hear there, much about a, elk there's, jumping the, there's some animals that are famous for jumping the string oh sure but no like, elk do it when they're tuned up like that i mean i i saw him do it over the years of guiding not a lot but yeah. they do it people talk about axis deer being literally gone by the time the arrow gets there you know there was a frame where you could see your arrow in like a dark patch of timber moving through, and then you could see the bull. Like when you pause footage, every and if and nothing's moving, everything's like clear. It looks like a, just a regular photograph. But as soon as something moves, you get a little bit of motion blur, and there's a shot where that arrow was going through, and that bull is like starting to get blurry. He's already on the move. Yeah, so you can see that he's already like, whoa, and then he just pushed forward just enough probably just to kick it back in my collection of interesting shit i have a deer skull that has a three-bladed a steel feral type three-bladed broadhead from the 50s that's embedded perfectly in a deer's brain pan and the entrance hole is right dead center in its forehead and it was from my father and he there was a deer feeding in a field and vehicles would go by and the deer wouldn't spook that bad from the vehicles it was so used to highway traffic and my dad had his recurve and, and had a had his buddy take his van with the door open so that my dad could jump out of the moving van into a ditch with his bow to get the approach so his buddy drives by slowly my dad rolls out of the van into the ditch um the deer watches the van roll away and my dad rolls up with his bow and lets an arrow go and so much time elapsed between the noise of the arrows release the deer was able to swing its head around in the direction and black out its chest with its own head and caught it right there and, and dropped wow he it killed it yeah but it jumped the string in the worst in the worst way <laughs> worst, worst way imaginable <laughs> um so, yeah, man, the arrow's just back. And I was feeling real, real down. Um, we went and laid low for a few hours. So probably three hours. Because here's the thing, man. Like, if you get a situation like that, you should lay low a long time, but it's so hot. It's hot, and we're very far away from the vehicle, and you got dark coming, there's coyotes and bears and wolves hanging around. Um, 
And it's, like I said, very warm, uncomfortably hot that day. Yep. Laid down for three hours, swarmed with flies and bees and ants, like that kind of weather. And start trailing, and it's just pinpricks. I remember, I think, Seth, you said, like, literally a pinprick. It's like if you dipped a pin... And all the blood we were finding, it would be like on the left side of his line of travel, he would brush off blood about three feet off the ground. One of the clues we found to help in the tracking is Giannis found a scratch mark on a tree that was where the knock of the arrow scratched a tree. Yeah, he split two trees that weren't that far apart. And the, the, and the knock scratched. Yeah. And we were tracking, we were looking for heavy foot, heavy tracks, heavy foot, heavily placed foot tracks, footprints. Um, following those, trying to coordinate those with little pinpricks of blood. I didn't think about it now, but when he brushed against that tree or was forced to brush against that tree with that arrow that was still stuck in his side, that probably did a fair amount of damage. I thought a lot about that even at the time. I was like, that's like a whole, that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so it'd be that you'd get a bit of blood and you'd find a set of tracks and, and make sense of the tracks and pers- follow the tracks and try to corroborate your instincts with another drop of blood that verifies that it's right or not. And we're tying little ribbons in the trees. And so you can also sort of get this sense of travel. And it really made sense to me that he would have followed the river bottom but didn't and uh, cut up and we tracked him. And how many hours do you think it took? Roughly three. Trailed for three hours, and you traveled three miles of zigzagging. Mm-hmm. Your GPS showed that you traveled three miles. And as the growth. Yeah, yeah, you had a phone with, a, with the Onyx app on it. Yeah. And since we started tracking, we went, we moved the track 170 yards as the crow flies. But you zigzagged three miles. Looking for droplets Over of blood. three hours, yeah. And then, so now it's about six. Hard dark is eight. It's about six, and we hear an elk. I jump an elk that's 75 yards away from me, and I hear it storm off and then go quiet. And we suspect that, like, oh, we bumped him. Now we have to wait till the morning to get after him. And that's bad because it's a, it's going to be a war. It's just not getting cold at night. It's not getting cold at night. And then hike takes a couple hours to hike out of there. Go back. What I did, the last thing I did is I took and shot a waypoint in the, in the cardinal direction that I thought the sound was and guessed that it was maybe 75 yards away and set that waypoint. And we went back up in the morning and, and, Giannis and Seth started trying to work the track, like work out the track and the trail. And I jumped ahead to where I thought it jumped from and looked there and couldn't find the bed. But eventually we found where it laid down and bled. And I went to the where I thought the sounds had gone and where the sound ended and picked up a little pinprick of blood. And that let us jump the trail quite a ways. Yeah, Lauren actually found that bed that he was bedded in that we jumped him out of. Had a fair amount of blood in it. But yeah, you made a big jump. We jumped like a solid 100 yards. And then the weirdest thing, one of the weirdest things that's ever happened in the woods happens. 
All of a sudden, I hear what I swear is a person whistling. That's what it sounded like to me, too. And it took me a few minutes to realize it was, in fact, a person whistling. And at this point, we traveled up where we're only less than 200 yards from a property boundary. And I'm like, oh, we're going to get pre-yelled at by a landowner or something. Like, why else is this guy, like, hot to talk to us? At this point, we're very close to what would become the end of the blood trail. This guy, there's another bow hunter out. And he glasses up a bull laying in a weird spot. And it wound up being that he glassed up our dead bull and had gone down there to take pictures of it to show it to his friends and act like he got it or make a gag on his friends. And he starts yelling to us. And we realized that just, I mean, we would have hit it and wouldn't be long. We would have hit it anyway. Yeah, we would have probably been on it in less than 15 minutes, I think. There it was, piled up. In hindsight, I believe that when we jumped it, I think it ran down that hill and died. I know you don't agree with that take, but that's what I think happened. Yeah. Just because of how it was piled up there and, and what was going on with the where it was. and I think it ran down the hill and died. But it was a warm night. It was a warm morning. We had a long hike in there. But at this point, it was hot out. Yeah, we found him at, I think, about 10 a.m. Yep. All those flies that had been on us were on him. And at that point, it was like a big bowl, man. And at that point, it's just like getting in there, and, and, and it's like a thing that's ha- – I can tell you that the four, it's happened to me four times out of many – not just mine, but be, me being present for four big game kills where meat was lost because of heat. And they all had to do with – three of the four had to do with not finding an animal the day you got it, but finding it the next day. Three of the four. The fourth was just, just having my first out west hunting experience and not realizing how quickly things can go south if you're not careful. The other three were all from, were all from not finding something and have to find, finding something the next day. But lost, lost meat. Lost a considerable amount of meat. Yeah. Possibly half the animal. Which is like, makes it sickening, man. It's like you want to be happy. You know, you want to be happy about it, but in the end, it's like it's just always winds up being like a little bit tainted. And it's like a bull of a lifetime, man. Like, I won't get a bull like that again. I mean, maybe I will, but I don't deserve to. I don't expect to. But you always got that in your head. And, you, and you, so it's, you run in your head, and it's like, okay, you, you try to do your shot right. And you didn't. Maybe there's an excuse why, like, maybe it jumped the string. Well, that's part of your responsibility, too. Don't shoot arrows at stuff that's aware of you. If it's already, like, hyper-keyed into your presence and it's already, like, half-thinking about Bolton, maybe you don't let the arrow go. But you did because you're greedy. Then you, you blow your shot. And then you're like, okay, the thing to do when you blow your shot is give it a while. Give it a long time so you don't pressure it. So you give it a long time. If you bump it, don't keep going. Back out pick it up the next day but if you pick it up the next day there's you know you got to wait 12 hours whatever you got to give it plenty of time during that time spoilage occurs so you run back in your head you're like man all these ways in which i wish we'd have done things better but it's like i feel like kind of did everything you're supposed to do but in the end you sort of wound up with a shitty outcome 
There's no lesson. Oh, there's some, definitely some lessons within our experience. But I don't know if there's like a hard lesson. Of- it's not a hard lesson. There's no like next time. No. But next time you jump one when you're trailing it, you're going to go running after it? No. No, but these lessons would be would just uh, would be the sort of like reinforcing lessons that you would do what we did because I think that we did end up with a because with our blood trail we could end up not finding him and we could have bumped him some more and he might have not been laying out on an easy ridge to find him he could have gone another half mile farther and died in some hellhole tangle where you know the dude from the other side didn't see him we lost the blood trail, lost the heavy tracks as he comes out on the open ground where there's rocks and it's hard to track. So, you know, I feel like we like did pretty good. There could have been a lot of other many much worse scenarios. There are lessons to be learned in fortifying things you already think are true because it makes you more certain. Mm Mm-hmm. But in some ways, this shook that up because, like I said, the thing is, when you bump something, never pressure it. But I think if we'd have walked over, there would have been laying there dead. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll never know. Learn what you think about all that. That's the end of my story. It's the end of my story. It worked out. Big, huge, giant bull. We stuck with it and recovered the bull of a lifetime for you. uh, uh, Yeah, to everyone's credit, I think it it was one of the best bits of tracking. Yeah, very much a team effort. Best bit of track, track and that been around. Rich Ponder, he uh, even uh, was getting in there despite. What about this orange leaf? <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I, found, I found one one spot of blood after we had like somebody had found one way ahead, and as we were walking there, I like turned and looked and found one spot of blood, and I was like, all right, I found one spot. <laughs> I didn't totally fail. Even though it like wasn't didn't help the investigation at all. Yeah. But I was stoked that my eyes weren't totally shot. Yeah, that's a crazy task to have to track just drops of blood like that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything. Uh I didn't find a single spot of blood. I saw a bed eventually from w- looking at obvious heavy tracks and a wet spot in dirt. So it had to be pretty in my face to see anything so it was an amazing yeah it takes track. a level of uh focus that i think that uh m- most humans aren't normally used to doing uh that what it takes to be on a track like that when you're going down to trail pin, something when you're going well when it gets down to pin drops every 10 or 20 feet it it, it is just so easy to be like <laughs> I'm done. Mm-hmm. Giving up, you know. Sometimes they're on the leaf. Sometimes they're on the ground. So you're yeah. just kind of like looking everywhere. And the leaves had like little. Me and Seth were talking about that. There's like weird, like as the leaves were changing. There's like weird, little like liquidy looking, mm-hmm. ambery brownish spots. Yeah. Like every time you look at leaf, you're like, oh, there's. Oh no, it's not blood. Yeah. Um, when you're filming hunts, Lauren, uh, how much are you live in like the the product. And how much do you live in uh, the the experience of being along? I think it kind of goes both ways. It's been a while since I've done a real serious hunt. Like I think I'd had a couple years off. But uh, before I did any hunting, filming at all, 
I really didn't have any interest in hunting whatsoever. But that experience and that education in in watching people who knew what they were doing changed my perspective on all of it and kind of gave me a passion for it in and of itself. So I think it's a little bit of both. You know, if you're behind the camera, if you're producing anything, I think you want to produce something that's going to be as top shelf as you can possibly make it. Uh, so that comes into play all the time uh, as being a high priority because you don't want to put your name on something that isn't top shelf. Yeah. Uh, but the experience, too, you know, can't be replaced by anything because you're not going to get that experience as a camera guy, as a hunter, without going and doing it and experiencing it and checking it out and learning about it. I think about too that you got started filming by filming like 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 extreme whitewater kayaking and like stuff where people die. So you probably uh, early on learned um, this idea that it, was, that it wasn't always something that could be separated out. Like there was like a real like filming that kind of stuff that there was like a real risk there, you know, um, and you were living something kind of real. You were oh, filming yeah. something that was happening in a very real way to people, right? Like ex- like taking like extremely challenging risks, both to capture it and what the people are doing, and so it probably felt like really, uh, like I was saying earlier, consequence rich. Oh yeah, for sure. And you always in the back of your head wondered if the camera gave that person some sort of courage they wouldn't whether otherwise would yeah. have had. Uh, like if someone so you, drowned and you're like, man, he would have never done that if we didn't, if we weren't filming it. Yeah. I mean, there was the gnarliest thing during whitewater for us, for me personally was watching a guy go off a waterfall and break both of his legs. It changed his life. He never, you know, he kept kayaking after that, but it was a moment in time in his life that just completely shaped his life for the rest of his life. Uh, And so the consequences were super real. And you kind of, as the camera guy, even felt guilty for being there just to capture him doing his passion, following his passion. Yeah. Major consequences. And that, you know, I think as you get older, that priority or that desire to try and push the limits changes. But um, I don't know how you equate it to hunting. It's just obviously it's very different, but you are still taking risk. Yeah, you're not taking, but the consequence there is you're like, you're, you're dealing in life and death. You're dealing out death, which isn't the light thing. You know, you're out there dealing it. You're, yeah, you're like in this position of, uh, you know, you have like substantial sort of power that you're wielding with a a weapon, right? Making choices about how things will die. Um, There's a necessity, there's like a definite necessity to it. There's an inevitability to it for things that typically are dying violent deaths violent painful deaths regardless of your involvement in it but all of a sudden you're inserting your you're inserting yourself into it you know 
Ridge, this is final thought. Yeah, man. Oh, it's a chance for a concluder. You don't have to have one. I don't care. No, I got, I got one. Well, I don't know if I got one. It just uh, took up chewing sunflower seeds. Yeah, we got into that. (laughs) No dip, no dip on this trip. Just, just spits, man. Spit seeds. Just spit seeds. But I don't want to feed your concluder, do you? Uh, no concluder. I hadn't. I was kind of wrapped up in Lauren's little thing there. That was a. That was good, man. Um. No, just the whole experience was crazy. Just seeing those elk that close and hearing the bugles and being out there is just. I hadn't done anything like that before despite being on elk hunts before it was it was cool it can be religious i have yeah. two clients that i know of that uh they came back so many times that they've worked through probably all the guides over the years but that they both wanted at least one all of his ashes and the other one part of his ashes spread out on those mountains that we used to hunt because that it was just so special to him to be there in september in those woods and and you know pl- be a uh, part of it. Being part of what we just did last week. Yeah. Do I your far it. off bull be- whistle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Uh, that's about it, man. Both these guys killed it on their first meat eater trip. Yeah. Did a great job. It was a great crew to be a part of. Captured always, some wonderful footage. Yeah. Wonderful footage. Which yeah. I, I I look forward to people seeing. Yeah, me too. Kelsey? I have like a concluder question. Oh, that's great, man. Okay. We talked about like the lose your shit factor a little bit. And yes, I feel like, you know, me as a new hunter, not having that elk experience, thinking about it in the future someday. A lot of people, you know, they prepare by shooting at a target at best, like a total archery challenge style preparation, you know, like what would you say to people? How do you, how do you prepare for that experience where you go out there all of a sudden you have a bow and arrow in your hands and there's a screaming out, you know, 35 yards away. What, what do you, what can you do? My, my, my feeling is that it's the only thing is exposure to the thing itself. I don't think it's replicable. Um, but that's in season. Yeah, but our friend, like, but, but there's people that disagree. Like our friend Rourke Denver, who was involved in in training some of the most like elite combat soldiers on the planet, mm-hmm. feels that through realistic scenarios and constant drilling and realistic scenarios, he feels that you can achieve something close to actual experience where you can get people into a situation where it becomes rote. It becomes so rote kicking in a door and storming a compound. Right. That it becomes so rote and you, you've done it so many times, you know just exactly what to do that when you're doing it for real for the first time, you feel like you've already been here. But I don't think you can achieve that in this situation. Well, that's what I'm saying. Cause like, how what do would, you, I don't, what the hell would it be? That you only have the situation once a year. Cause like, I mean, I can, I've been that close to elk many times in my life, but the pressure wasn't there. Yeah. The scenario of a rut wasn't there. You know, it's like, how do you prepare yourself for that intensive experience where you're literally losing your shit and you have to accomplish something? I feel like it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's exposure to the thing itself. Yeah. I don't think it needs to be, I think it would absolutely help 
if you were just standing with someone or, or with the caller, yeah. just any amount of exposure to it, but it's not a trainable thing. Mm-hmm. I think you can, yeah, there's just nothing that's going to trip you up emotionally and psychologically that that will. Like, let's say they had like some mechanical elk that went, you know, not the same. You're not gonna, yeah. you're not gonna be like, oh man, I've been through this before. With that super realistic target that has an elk bugle noise it makes, it just isn't going to do it. And there's mm-hmm. some people that are never going to get over it, and there's some people that are just cold-blooded. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean some people that can cool. separate. Cool. cool. I would like – I lost it when I had like gobbling turkeys my first turkey season mm-hmm. this yeah. year. So I'm like, man, what am I going to do, you know? I called a turkey in for a guy that never hunted this spring. And when that turkey showed its head, he said – Oh my God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Killed the turkey. Yeah. But it stunned him. Yeah. I think that's just like an ongoing question. Everybody has to prepare yourself for the fact that you're not going to just be okay. Well, that- a lot of times it gets worse because the beginners ha- can have like a beginner coolness because mm. you just, you just so, um, you don't even have enough exposure to know that you should, how excited you should be. Yeah. And so the first couple of times you can, so everybody's like, damn, God, you just did that perfectly. It was like no big deal. And then the next time you sort of like, you're just a little bit more relaxed and somehow there's more chemicals entering your brain and your body and, I mean, how many times when we were kids, ch- bow hunt, where you like would try to pull on that string and you were like, I physically can't pull my bow back because of buck fever. Oh, yeah. I had buck, I had buck fever. Might even have been doe fever. I was late in high school and couldn't pull my bow back. I had it set too high. I know I honestly keep it in mind when I'm setting my bow. Like, I don't just go to like max. I go to like, dude, when you're in panic mode, is this bow going to grease back nice? That's what I think about. Because I've had it like, you're cold, too cold to get it back, and too nervous. And so I don't run like, I don't just like keep cranking until I'm like pulling, yeah, to get the bow back. I can pull my bow back nice. Thinking about that stuff. Yeah, and I can call bulls in and get all these experiences and sit there and be half asleep on the hillside. <laughs> Just with a smile on my face. But rocking if I, if I rocking was, your hand and a smile <laughs> on your face. If I, yeah. If I had to just jump over the ridge and put a bow in my hand, it, it's just, it just completely changes. It, like the blood pressure is through the roof. Yeah. But there's things that we did at, at our camp um, in Colorado that a lot of guys said helped them a lot. Like we had a 3D course set up. Didn't have a bunch of targets, you know, maybe six or eight or so. And we would set up just funky, crazy shit, like shooting through a bunch of tight aspens where the lane was only eight inches. Or we'd have them set up on a bench and we would make it so like we'd all stop before you could see the target and be like, okay, here's how this shot works. Knock an arrow. You're going to take three steps. You're going to be able to see that elk. You need to draw your bow and count to three in your head and make a shot because that's how it happens in real life, right? And so we would sort of play out these scenarios. And again, these were seasoned hunters. You know, they're out on a paying paid elk hunt. But we would do a lot of stuff like that where it wasn't just like we were just out there shooting a target or just even if it was an elk target, just shooting an elk target out in a field. But we would, you know, make scenarios up in our heads, you know? We'd a lot of times have guys shoot at stuff that was two and three yards away. Because you tell you what, a lot of dudes, especially compound bow guys, they have no idea where their arrow is going to hit when it's at two yards. And sometimes crazy shit like that happens, and you need to have that confidence 
to just be like, yeah, whatever, all my pins on his heart and touch it off. <laughs> but if you've never gone through that and all of a sudden there's an elk at two yards or three yards, you could very well freeze up and never pull the trigger and or, or, or whatever. Just be so – never pick a spot because even at two yards, you better pick your spot and not just go, oh, there's an elk and pull the trigger. You're going to end up with one in the guts. I took one of my old girlfriends out once and we got out in front of a bugling bull. And he comes over 15 yards away, full erection. <laughs> she never pulled her bow back. He got up, stood there, bugled a couple times, walked down the other side of the bridge. I'm like behind her. I get like, what happened? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> never pulled the bow. It was just too much. Yeah. We used to make guys do 10 or 20 jumping jacks, then knock an arrow and take a shot in three or three to five seconds just to get their heart rate up. Yeah. Right. But yeah, still. Like buck fever, I, I don't think you're you're not going to replicate it. And I'll tell you what makes it worse is messing up. The messing ne- up. It makes it worse the next time. Puts you in a hole. Yeah. If you start out on flat ground, it puts you in a hole. Seth? Had a blast. You ready to get after them big old flathead catfish? I am. I'm stoked for that. <laughs> Flatheads and some squirrels. Uh, no, I just had a blast, man. It was a good group of guys and awesome hunt, challenging, rewarding. Um, I'll try to up my cookie game next time. Yeah. Tates. I'll work on that. <laughs> Tates. <laughs> I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, awesome trip. Congrats again on the big giant bull. Yeah. Um, do you feel, because you've done a bit of elk hunting. Yep. Do you feel that after going to a unit like that, does it kind of like make everything seem like a little bit of a bummer? Maybe a little bit. I know I'm struggling with that. If all spots were like that spot. It's like, do you really need to go back to the kind of place where someone blows a call and it just explodes with the reach, like the wood just explodes without going the other direction? Yeah. <laughs> Who are like, dudes, it's dudes. I know that sound. The Yeah, the, the morning you shot your bull, I, I don't know. I don't think too many elk hunters get to experience something like that. No. That was crazy. No. No. They don't. Yanis? Yeah. I agree. It's few and far between, but it's hard to appreciate those hunts without being out on a bunch of public land hunts where if you call a bull a day in or even just have an interaction with a bull per day, like that's good. What's cool about this is it is public land. Yeah. So it's kind of fun like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Where it's like there's like at least a chance. Yeah. And we chance. had ups and downs. I mean, we had two days of zero bugles and feeling like, oh, you, yep. what are we doing? Like, we have no idea how to hunt elk, kind of, you know? Because it's going to cost, it would cost to go have that, to go buy that experience is $20,000. Yeah, close to it for sure. 15, 20 to buy that experience. Mm-hmm. But with public lunch, luck of the draw could happen to anyone. Yep. Sounds like not for non-residents in Washington, though, as you yeah. explained. I don't know what the odds are there. It's but I mean, expensive and... But I mean, around, odds. right? Like, there's like great, you know, there's great units in Colorado. There's units in Utah. There's units in Arizona. There's units in Montana. Like, there's units in every state. Like, there's, every state has a couple of those spots that you could just hit mm-hmm. without costing what you paid for your vehicle. No, no closing thoughts for me other than I can't wait to uh, 
have you learn how to call real good and then call big. And it, it, I told you already, it doesn't mirror, have to be an 8 mirror. by 8 Just a 7 by 7 will be cool. I got it down. That's the one I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for having us. Going hunting. Cheers. You are? Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.